In this one, we're pretty much in total agreement. Mm -hmm. I like the Dragon 2. I like the special effects. I like the production design of this mm -hmm. film. I really admired the way that they created the Dark Ages. I thought yes. it looked kind of convincing in a way. Everybody's mm -hmm. kind of grungy and dirty, and they're right. wearing rags and walking through the forest. Unlike Excalibur, where everybody was wearing suits of armor that wouldn't be invented for another 600 years. Yeah, I did get uh, the other, other film of that time period that I thought was interesting was uh, Roman Polanski's Macbeth a number of years mm -hmm. ago. And it was for that very same thing that you mentioned, the dirtiness and the grubbiness mm -hmm. of it all. back to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the show where we go back and talk about movies that bomb theatrically or maybe the critics didn't like. Brad, I hope you brought your character sheet in D20. Uh, I, I did. I did. Uncle Troy, I, I did. I did. Okay. You have spoiled my kids while you're here this weekend, so you're Uncle Troy from now on. I, I love it. Um, what do, You want to introduce the... Look, you're going to introduce the film... I'm a little starstruck right now because I'm going to introduce our, our big cast, but let's just get into this. What are we going to talk about tonight? Yeah, we're talking about 1981's Dragon Slayer, the dark fantasy film from Matthew Robbins. Yes. So we've talked about this in the past. I think between you and I, I, I am a little bit of a bigger nerd because I do participate in uh, tabletop RPGs. You, you, you haven't dipped your toes yet into it formally. But when you really get into Dungeons and Dragons and 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 you know DCC and some of the other ones, um, when you when you can't play with your friends, you're usually listening to podcasts that are recreating that whole session. And one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to on a regular basis, they're already on season five, which is kind of crazy, is Rolling with Difficulty. And Brad, I am I am super excited to read. To just introduce, um, we've got Sophia. So she's been on the podcast before. You want to say hi, Sophia? Hello, hello. I'm back. You're back. Yes. We've got Austin um, from Rolling with Difficulty. How are you doing tonight, Austin? I am doing great. Very excited to be here. Thank you. We're excited to have you. We've got Red making her debut on our on our little show. How are you this evening? Stop. Um, I'm good. I learned that my parents watched this movie, uh, so I got to text them about it, which was fun. They had opinions. <laughs> I, we can't wait to hear theirs and yours. Last but not least, um, one of my favorites, but let's be honest, you're all my favorites because uh, I just, I, I love this show. We've got Noir um, to help us out with our review of Dragon Slayer. How are you this evening, sir? Hello. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm super glad to be here. Uh, yeah, you're eager to get into it. So just real quick, before we get into this, I, I have a couple of like fanboy questions. Um, how did this all get started? Did you, were you guys just doing some tabletop RPGs on the side and thought, Hey, it would be awesome to record this and just share this with the world. I mean, how did rolling with difficulty get started? Like all podcasts in my life, it's, it got it started Sophia. because Sophia was <laughs> yeah. like, Hey, I've, I've got an idea for a third make I big podcast. Constantly I'm trying to pull everyone around me into some sort of audio endeavor. Um, Noir, Austin, and I have played in a home game in college together. Uh, Red and I were friends who had talked about the show, and our, our fifth member who couldn't make it today, Wally, uh, 
plays home games with Austin. So we were all independently playing tabletop RPGs. And a little podcast gremlin in my brain woke up one day and said, you should you should put this on the internet. And um, so we sort of assembled the team. Uh, Austin and I put together the pitch for our first campaign. And it it's just kept going from there. It, it proved to be fun. And uh, like all fun things, we wanted it to keep going. And now we're five seasons deep. <laughs> it, it's awesome. It's been it's been gone going on for a long time. I I think uh, I'm in the middle of the latest episode. You guys um, were just kind of teleporting, and you fought a big sandworm, and that didn't go very well. Oh yeah. Um, uh, what has <laughs> been your yeah? What's been your favorite moments of the last five seasons for each of your characters? Now, you all have um, some very unique characters. Um, so if you want to give us a little bit of background of who you play and then maybe some of your favorite like moments, if you're giving an elevator pitch to somebody, I'm like, Hey, you should listen to our podcast. I do this. And this person's really cool. Here's why. Huh? That's yeah. fun. Who should go first? I, Austin describe every oh. NPC. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll do all the voices. Yeah, well, we'll be Aust- taking notes. Austin's the DM, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm the DM. So, uh, the, so instead of talking about my character, maybe I'll just pitch the campaign really quick. The campaign is set in our amalgamation of the Spelljammer and Planescape settings. So it's sort of Spelljammer kind of vibes, kind of space faring these heroes on this spaceship, but it's a, it's a Spelljammer. It's a big boat that flies through uh, by the use of magic. And they're traveling between the different planes, which we kind of treat as like almost like Star Wars planets. There's the, you know, the world of, of clockwork um law and there's literally hell and there's the world of just water and things like that so it's these lovable heroes picking up different adventures traveling to a new location every every session and uh just kind of seeing what kind of crazy stuff that this crazy setting has to offer awesome i love it uh who wants to go next I can oh, go next. Oh, God. Do it right. Do it. <laughs> Canadian Do it right. stand. Uh, yeah, the character I play is a, an astral self monk, which, as I understand it, was a subclass created because somebody was like, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is great. What if we could do that in <laughs> D&D? Uh, I have acquired just enough levels of barbarian to get one special effect for being a barbarian and now it's back to monk uh recency bias i've been quite fond of every moment i get to look austin in the eyes and be like i'm immune to poison now because i'm a 10th level monk (laughs) put those d6s down um but i am quite fond of the uh the time that we fought blocketh the lich queen of the gith and i technically got to get the last strike by letting her stab me because i have an ability that lets me deal damage if i take damage and she had one hit point left um i thought that was pretty fun (laughs) That that was in, incredibly <laughs> impressive. Um, I went down like three rounds in a row. I needed something. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Noir, you want to go? Sure. Yeah. So I play. Um, uh, officially, it's called a Warforged, but Warforged are native to the Eberron setting, which is not in the Planescape, but it is in our show. Maybe you want to find out. Um, <laughs> and so uh, my race is is called Mecha Knight. Um, kind of this uh, mechanical being essentially called Virla. He is a wizard, uh, a bit more recently, recently cleric. Um, and he's a very, he's a very bookish and intellectual sort. Um, one of my favorite moments was in the first season, actually, uh, they had just finished an adventure in the Feywild, which is like this, this fairy realm, essentially very heightened emotions, very vibrant. And, uh, one of the little kids in the village asks this very poignant, uh, asks this question, I think, uh, I don't, the question escapes me, Austin. Can you help me? It was 
his question was, why is there a forest here, I believe? <laughs> yeah, and Virla pulled out, well, I pulled out this very deep and poignant answer, and it was imme- I was immediately kneecapped by the kid going, uh, no, it's because there's trees. <laughs> I think that was a very... That's a very nice microcosm of what Virla is all about. Um, trying to be very charismatic and deep and poignant and failing every single time. <laughs> I, I think that's what I love about that character. It very wise, very pragmatic um, in an, in an environment that doesn't um, appreciate that, which actually uh, lends itself to, to some good comedy, to be quite honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, last but not least, Sophia, the, the character that, I don't know how you're alive still, but um, to be quite honest, I'm a merciful DM. (laughs) I love playing a character that just dumps the constitution stat. Uh, No, I play the ship's mechanic, a fire genasi artificer. Um, I'm surprised that you recognize me by my voice because usually on the podcast, I sound like this the whole time and it's really fun to do long term. But uh, (laughs) uh, I'm always looking to improve the ship. Uh, I'm our token street rat punk kid so i've got to get up to some shenanigans uh and in some seasons i've had checklists of things i've had to find in order to do improvements to the ship one of those was some golden fleece oh and god conveniently for us when we found ourselves in the beastlands i was able to encounter a golden sheep and nearly die by its horns but after 20 or so minutes of valiant incredibly comedic combat uh we did pull through and that's probably my favorite 20 minutes of the entire campaign <laughs> so far. Uh, I respect Austin's willingness to hand my ass back to me whenever I try to do something <laughs> silly. <laughs> the beauty it's very of, the, of the golden goat is that it was a completely optional encounter. So mm-hmm. because you opted into it, I got to go, all right, bet, and just <laughs> yeah. trounce you. On your own head, may it be. That's always yeah. the danger with the optional encounters. <laughs> goat died honorably, and I got that golden fleece. <laughs> well, I, again, I, I know you guys are super busy um, because there's a lot that goes into your podcast, not just kind of sitting down and, um, you know, just talking. But if anybody's played Dungeons and Dragons, there's there's tons of prep work to this stuff, um, especially not just for the the Dungeon Master, Austin. I, I know you're carrying a lot of the math here, but everybody else having to kind of prep and get into character. We're going to talk about sword and sorcery film specifically from the 80s. But before we get into that, we have this little routine. Sophia's been through this before. We we do this, I don't know, it's kind of like a Rorschach test where we ask you some questions because we want to get a feel for what your movie tastes are like. And so I'm going to start with the first one and we'll just go around. But um, I got to know, what is your favorite D&D monster? And I'll start with you, Red. We'll, we'll go with you first. I am a child of 3.5. And what I love about 3.5 is that they just kept putting out more monster manuals. None of the ideas were good past like monster manual two, And even that one was a little bit of a stretch, but I have very fond memories of just flipping through all of them. And I have to represent the topiary guardians, which is when you take a shrub and you sculpt it into a dinosaur and it becomes everybody's problem. (laughs) (laughs) That, that is a great pick. Thank you. Wasn't, wasn't the second, was it, Volume two were, it wasn't an official book, but it was in a binder. I, I'm trying to remember. I don't know. In 3.5 is the one where they did all the like hardbound books that looked like they were magical tomes with like crystals. I remember that like, one. Made yeah. of brain. Yeah. Uh, so the volume two of Monster Manual for that one looked a lot like volume one, but with a slightly different monstery cover. Okay. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember which volume that, uh, cause I, the, the monster manuals are my favorite part of the D and D, um, process. So you can just sit there and go through it all. I did that when I was because I got into D and D when I was like nine. Uh, so mostly I was just flipping through, looking at the pictures, uh, and then only learning the rules under duress. But oh man, I have such fun that we had like the the complete expanded psionics handbook, which looks like it's made of brain. I don't know. It was very fun. Um, Lords of Madness, the Book of Aberrations, always a good time. Anyway, that is awesome. I love it. Yeah. All right, we're gonna go to you, Austin. Your favorite D and D monster. Uh. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of cheat. My my favorite D D monster is the owl bear because uh. I think that it is quintessentially D D. Um, it is silly in its origin. There were if you don't if you don't know about this, a lot of D D monsters exist because when they were creating D D and they were creating it for the grid, they knew that people were going to play playing with minis, and it was rather easy to get fan- fantasy like person minis because people were playing other like fantasy medieval warfare games but the monsters weren't easy to get so they just went to a i think it was like a convenience store sold these cheap plastic toys and they they were like all over the country they just designed monsters to look like those they just brought the toy out they're like what is that they were like land shark and they said okay cool write a monster for that and then they would tell you to go buy those toys so the owlbear comes from that origin and it's so like uniquely dnd it's got a silly origin it's just a silly premise half owl half bird half mammal owl and bear um and yet it's also kind of terrifying especially to like low levels so i feel like it's kind of quintessentially DD, and i love it for that reason i collect owl bears uh that being said the stat block is kind of boring in 5e so if i'm going off stat block it's the abolith abolith can do some nasty oh, no. stuff <laughs> you <laughs> took mine <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry i should have taken two which one <laughs> i have a i have a bag of don't worry all right well we'll, we'll, we'll kick it over to you it was that you're going to be your pick nor I was going to choose the Abolith, yeah, like, not really for mechanical reasons, but just, like, the concept of the Far Realm is really, really interesting to me, and, and the and the Abolith, to me, is kind of that quintessential uh, epitome of, of just, like, really messed up guy. Uh, <laughs> but um, I do like encounters that aren't necessarily just uh, guys hitting guys turn after turn or whatever. I like it if there's, like, a different kind of twist to it that makes the encounter a bit more interesting. Um, when I ran the home game that Sophia and Austin were, was were mentioned, uh, when I met the, when I ran the home game that Sophia mentioned, Austin and Sophia were in it. Uh, there was an encounter where I had some shadows um, and there are, they're a relatively minor um, monster. They don't do that much damage, but the way that I had played them was that um they didn't activate until the group had entered the room and turned on their torches. And so it was the play of the light and shadow that actually activated the monsters. And um, the trick to them was that you had to stay away from like the walls where the shadows could kind of rise and, and actually begin to attack. Um, and I believe in 5e, there's also an additional feature where um, uh, if shadows attack you, they sap your strength. And if you die to a shadow, you turn into one like 1d4 hours later or something like that. Ooh. So that was another cool thing. So that'll be my pick. Like, that, I like okay, shadows. that is awesome. I love that pick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I Sophia, you, you have to come after all these <laughs> picks. I don't know how you're going to top it, but what's your favorite? 
Yeah, I just want to say at the top that I'm absolutely shocked and appalled that Austin didn't say Onkegs is his favorite. because <laughs> Oh, shit. I forgot about Onkegs. I... <laughs> I don't know how that's possible. Every game I've played with Austin, he has made me fight an Onkeg. It's... Mm, I've maybe fought loves. more Onkegs in my D&D career than any other monster because of how frequently I've played this game. <laughs> but he did, he did <laughs> choose Owlbear. Owlbear, which is iconic. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but for my pick, uh, I have to go with the classic mimic. I love that it can pop up anywhere in the world. You know, I think you kind of get into this mindset with a lot of the classic D&D campaigns where it's like, if I'm in a town, I'm a little safer. Or like, you know, when you're out in the wilderness, then you encounter monsters and bandits and things. But I love that you could pop a mimic anywhere in your world and create an impossible encounter for players. I think it really, it, it results in a lot of very creative and memorable combats, even if it's not the most threatening monster in the monster manual. So I got I to rep the mimics. All right. I, I love it. I, I do... I do agree the mimic is um, one of the most fun monsters to put into a campaign because you can put it anywhere yeah. for the most part. Mm-hmm. I love that. Brad, I, I know you're dipping your toes into this, but in what you've read so far, do you have a favorite D&D monster? Ooh, I, I don't. I, I will say I, I'm, I'm heavy into Baldur's Gate 3, so mm. like I, I have uh. been you know, getting, getting into that, but I'm just playing that game so I could have sex with other characters. <laughs> <laughs> That's... Typical Brad. Uh, yep. <laughs> I was going to say Albert. That that Albert. Like I'm saying a French Albert. <laughs> Albert the Albert. Um, Albert. Albert. Um, that, that's always been my favorite monster. But outside of that, if I had to pick a secondary, it probably goes back to my love of a specific film. So like Red, the, the, the monster manual is my favorite thing. And the one monster that as a kid just scared the shit out of me was the Beholder. And the minute that yeah. I saw Big Trouble in Little China, and they had a creature, the floating, you know, <laughs> seer that looked very reminiscent of a beholder, I'm like, well, that is just the greatest thing I've ever seen. Um, so yeah, I, I love the beholder. I I think it's a great design, and, and I love the mm-hmm. fact that Big Trouble in Little China tried to incorporate, I think, a little bit of that into that. Uh, um, I don't know. I can't remember the specific uh, thing that it was called that Lopan was using, but. It was, it was a seer thing. Hmm. All right, Bray, you got the second question. Yeah. For our uh, so what is your favorite sword and sorcery film? And since I, the way I'm looking, I will go to my right. And that is noir. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick kind of what may be an obvious answer. And I'm going to rep the most recent Dungeons and Dragons movie. Oh, yes. that's so smart. It's just, it's just <laughs> a fun time. Um, like, and I was a little worried going into it because I didn't want necessarily a movie where it's like um, one scene, everyone is in the fantasy world. And then the next scene is a DM talking to the players or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I was glad that that wasn't the case. But I was also glad to see that they still managed to make it feel like a Dungeons and Dragons session without explicitly mentioning that it was a Dungeons and Dragons session or anything like that. And so little things like the Aarakocra in the beginning being called Jarnathan, like <laughs> like a name that was so clearly like pulled out of the DM's ass or anything like that, just on the spot. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm not too sure if this is the case. I'm going to have to watch it again and check. But I read somewhere, I think on Reddit, that the final encounter um, honors like the initiative order and and like rounds last six seconds or something like that, which if they did manage to pull it off is a really great detail. So. Mm-hmm. That is a great. Pick. Has yeah. has anyone seen the Dungeons and Dragons film from two thousand? Is that the the oldest the, one? The yeah. Jeremy Irons. Well, one. Jeremy Irons one. Jeremy, Jeremy Irons. Irons. Yes. Then yes, 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 I have. Okay. I take it nobody's picking that one in their in their favorites. 
Okay, good. All right. <laughs> uh, so next up is Sophia. Let's hear yeah. it. I thought a lot about this question because I feel like it depends on how far you're willing to stretch the definition of sword and sorcery. Because if you let it squish a little bit on the edges, you can include stuff like Army of Darkness and Labyrinth, which are excellent and uh, good in their genres, right? Um, if we're going purely sword and sorcery, and I know it's not a great movie, but I have so much nostalgia for it because I loved the books as a kid and I loved this movie as like a 10-year-old. Uh, Aragon. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. I'm not going to sit here and say it's the greatest movie ever made, but if you just want a fun little fantasy adventure and you're willing to not think too hard about it, I think you can get a lot of mileage out of this movie. And it was kind of a dead to time for sword and sorcery. So I'm, I'm going to rep Aragon. Um, yeah. I'd, I'd love to shout out uh, again, kind of stretching the definition of sword and sorcery, but the kid who would be King came out a couple years ago. Ooh, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. That's a great We're film. Talk about that at yeah. some point in time. Ooh, I loved it. I watched it on an airplane and then I watched it again when we landed. Uh, but just like a fun modern take on an Arthurian story. And you get all these great, really good young actors and like kids going on an adventure. And it scratches a very particular itch that a lot of sword and sorcery films do of we're going to go on a big adventure as these, these kids. And I loved it. So I'd, Aragon is the, it's d definitely in the definition. And if maybe it's not a, it could add much to my reputation choice. Kitty would be king. That's my street cred right there. That, that's the, <laughs> that's the, real yeah, that's, that's Joe Cornish and he did attack mm -hmm. the block. So we're, mm -hmm. we're going to get to that one. Absolutely. Um, okay. Austin, you're next. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, so I feel like, so I was, I was looking through, I was like, what is technically sword and sorcery? Cause I've seen like some, obviously like plenty of fantasy things. Uh, although I will say, I feel like this made me realize I've watched a lot more like science fiction than I have um, yeah. fantasy as I was looking through this. But I, my first thought was um, uh, the black cauldron movie. Oh, uh, okay. Disney, the, but I, I think mm. I'm going to go with a more obscure pick because I remember watching it. Yeah. I haven't seen it since I was like 10. But it has totally informed a lot of things I enjoy uh, to the point where I want to play a D&D character based off of it. Uh, the movie Lady Hawk from uh, sometime in the 1980s as well. Rudger Hauer. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Love it. Yeah. It's, you know, what's funny is I was just reading about today and in some for some reason in my mind, I had replaced Matthew Broderick with um, um, Sean Astin. I don't know why. <laughs> and then I was okay. like, That's not Sam. But anyway, uh, yeah, Lady Hawk really... Um, I don't know. There, there's something that always kind of stuck with me uh, about it, and uh, I've really enjoyed things that kind of play on the same idea. There's a great comic called Isola about a queen gets turned into a tiger and her guard trying to get her cured, and it's, it's a very similar vibe. So uh, I'm going to go with Lady Hawk. Yeah, that's Fantastic. a very Richard Donner film. It is. Um, and yeah. lastly, Red. Oh boy. Yeah, I also had the moment of like, I haven't watched a whole ton of sword and sorcery movies. It's certainly not a ton that I liked. Ref Sit, the original D and D movie. Um, I don't think I can stretch the definition far enough to include any of the Star Wars movies I want it to. Uh, <laughs> they're just aesthetically sci-fi. Structurally, they yeah. are they More are like space wizards and sorcery. Yeah, it's a fantasy Lasers movie. Swords and sorcery. It's a fantasy movie. They're all space wizards. It's all about believing in magic. It's great. Uh, but uh, honestly. When I watched it, I developed a great fondness for the 80s Conan the Barbarian movie. Uh, <laughs> it's not good. It's also pulling double wait, duty what? as my... Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, what? No, it's no, not wait, good? Wait. Hold on. Conan the Barbarian is a perfect film. <laughs> the Destroyer, I, I, if you want to say that one's not great, I'll listen to that, but Barbarian is perfect. Well, the funny thing is, like, I had an 
excellent time watching it. I was pleasantly surprised when the dead love interest came back in the finale briefly. That was cool. I wasn't expecting that from an 80s movie that just immediately killed the female lead. Um, but like the funniest thing I found when I was looking into the response to that movie is people being like, Conan wouldn't need to make traps to kill that army of minions. He would simply rend them asunder like the Chimerian he is. I don't know. I thought that was very funny. Uh, but I had a great time with that movie and it's pulling double duty as my answer to the other question about uh, pulpy movies. I just recommend to people. I was, I spent the week after I watched that, just bringing it up on everything. I was on like, by the way, I watched the Conan movie. You guys seen that movie? It's pretty good. Yeah. I'm really glad Red's getting an outlet for this. this is- <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I hadn't heard this one before. <laughs> I'd burned out by the time we recorded another rolling with difficulty. That week. <laughs> hey, That's a great pick. I mean, um, I don't know what you were going to pick, Brad. I'll, I'll just. Highlander. Highlander? Oh, that's good. I do not want to hear the Christopher (laughs) Lambert voice. (laughs) Highlander, okay. Well, you're going to get it, Troy. Okay. See, to me, Conan the Barbarian is probably the perfect sword and sword, but I'm a kid of the 80s, right? Mm. So uh, reading Savage Sword of Conan. Most of the 70s, but. Yeah, shush. Um, (laughs) But yeah, Conan is kind of what got me into DD to a certain degree. And I I think it's a fantastic movie, but it's not my favorite sword and sorcerer film. Like, I think Conan is the best film, but I just, I wish you guys could go back in a time machine. You go to a video store in the 80s. And there's a whole wall of can these. I, can I guess, Troy? Knockoff films. What What do you think it is? Uh, Death Stalker. Two. Death Stalker. Two. Okay. Okay. There have been four of them. Hey, these hey. movies Excellent. are terrible. They're oh. terrible. But the unique one about the second one is they tried to infuse a lot of comedy into it, um, which is even more terrible. But I have so much fun with those films because think Conan the Barbarian, which read you're like, uh, it's not perfect. It is. So, (laughs) (laughs) but imagine, you know, imagine taking Conan the Barbarian and stripping it down of all of its production and everything else and maybe getting a budget of $60 in free lunch (laughs) and um, hiring actually some fun, charismatic people and just saying, okay, we're, we're going to, we're going to make a sword and sorcery film. Um, It's, it's fantastic. I, but I can't I can't sit here and say, oh, watch the Deathstalker films. You're going to have a blast. Um, from a quality standpoint, I would say you could watch the Deathstalker films and, you know, under the right influence, uh, beer, alcohol, whatever. You're going to have an amazing time. So uh, they're on shut. One and two is on shutter right now for anybody who's curious. Oh, yes. How about that? Could be a bun- fun pop. Oh my God. I can't talk. It's perfect for an audio medium. Could be a fun, <laughs> you know, follow up after you listen to this podcast. There you go. <laughs> Watch watch Deathstalker two two that's the better one. Specifically, you'll see you'll see scenes from one because they reuse scenes from. Them. They ran out of money. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> Love that for them. All right, you got another one, Brad. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, what is everyone's favorite movie bomb? And let's go the other way this time. So, Red is first. Oh God. Uh, oof. I did make Sophia watch Jupiter Ascending at least once. Yeah, uh, did. Did but. You do that? I mean, mostly that was because I was just fascinated uh, trying to figure out why and how exactly it happened like that. Uh, But in terms of things that I was most recently recommending to people that are awful and I don't actually think are good, uh, I found this movie called Fire and Ice, which was a collab between (laughs) Ralph Bakshi and Frank Frazetta. Yeah. So I was like, this could be amazing. <laughs> what? what it was, was the most ass-heavy animated movie I've seen in my life. Uh, because Frank Frazetta's fascination with the human form and all its curvaceousness was just really exacerbated by Bakshi's tendency to rotoscope absolutely everything. 
Uh, and one of the characters, I'm convinced they just wanted to make it Conan the Barbarian, but they didn't have the legal rights. So they put a little Batman hood on him and were like, his name is Dark Wolf. Don't question it. Uh, it's it's so funny. It's not good, but I was fascinated by its existence. Uh, so if people are looking for uh, terrible, terrible 80s fantasy movies that feel representative of some of the weirdest parts of the genre. That one's pretty fascinating to me. That's a good pick. Th- those two perverts should not have made it. <laughs> I'm so glad that they did. Yes, but yes. It's, uh, it's an interesting okay. watch. Yeah. Uh, Austin, you're, you you can go next. Uh, for my favorite bomb? Yeah. Oh, yes. Please. So I think it does technically count as a bomb. I had I had to check. Um, com- completely out of genre, but my favorite bomb, I think, is the Man from Uncle movie. Uh there's a lot to love in there. It it is it does feel like a competition between uh, Henry Cavill and Army Hammer for who can be the most wooden Ooh. on camera, no, or who could seal my heart the most. <laughs> they're, like they're the correct trying, answer is Henry both. Cavill. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do agree there. Uh, I I think they both took the approach of like, and I'm the I'm like the stoic, cool one, and the other one will be, and neither neither of them like consulted with the other. That being said. Uh, it's just like there's so much like energy. The music is fantastic. Um, yeah, th- there's there's just a great vibe that I, I don't know that I've like seen a lot of other movies that makes me return to it. Amazing pick. Uh, that is episode 38, I believe, on Not <laughs> Yeah, Ooh. we love that uh, film. Love it. Sophia, you are next, please. Yeah, you know, I'm. And I feel confident saying this, the Internet's biggest speed racer fan, which oh, is historically <laughs> bomb. But I will recommend a different movie instead to have some variety in my Not A Bomb podcast career. Um, I would like to recommend 2020's Bloodshot. Uh, let, hear me out on this. It's Vin Diesel. He's in an action movie. So already you've got everything you want from him. Uh, and I think it's secretly a little smarter than any like than you would get from the trailer because it pitches itself as this is a dumb action movie. And then it's 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 a bit meta about it. There's a twist later on that recontextualizes all of it, and it sets itself up perfectly from the minute you see the trailer to that twist paying off. Um, and it's got some neat action sequences. So if you want to not think too hard and then be surprised by how hard you're thinking, you should check out 2020's Bloodshot. I don't want to very briefly derail, but I have a very funny Bloodshot story because the trailer for that came out around the time that they were starting to make noises about Fast Fast Furious 10. Uh, and I had been told I've never seen any of those be movies. Fast but X. Well, yeah, but I've been told by a friend that like, oh, they're getting really weird with it. And then we see this trailer for like Vin Diesel is a brainwashed mercenary whose blood is nano machines. I was like, Fast and Furious has gotten really weird. With it. Uh, I do think that the movie also speed runs. It's one of my favorite things in anything that's got a vaguely sci-fi element of they're just immediately they're throwing words that mean nothing at you. Nanite levels depleted, you know. Just the frequency in which people in that movie have to say the word nanite. I'm sold. <laughs> Bloodshot, huh? I've been trying to yeah. sell Troy on doing that on this uh, on this podcast, so maybe maybe that puts us over the edge. Yeah, we it has one good action sequence. I'll give you that uh, in the tunnel. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. All right, Noir. I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend a little 2010 movie called Rubber, which is <laughs> Jesus Christ, the, the tire film. Okay, oh, <laughs> which is a movie about a sentient tire that blows people blows people up. With yeah, not that's mind. that's a. Oh. That's the second reference to rubber we've had on this show. Yeah, John that's pretty good. Yeah. I love it. And I have to choose it just because when I I watched it on a whim when I was at like a high school party and it 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 was so fascinating to me. And then later on when I like looked into it, it just remained so fascinating because like in my experience, like 
middling movies usually are like middling in the sense that they're rated like five, six, four stars or whatever. But this is like the first movie I saw in which all the reviews are like really polarizing. Like you'll get, you'll get, <laughs> this is the best movie ever. And if you don't understand it, you're stupid alongside, this is the worst movie ever. And you can think, this, and if you think this is the best movie ever, you're stupid. And it's so fascinating to me. And I need more people to watch it because I need more data to figure out where it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's that uh, engineering part of your brain coming out, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) I love it. That was also the first ever movie struck episode because it was noir and he picked to increase his pool of data. (laughs) That's a fantastic pick. So I do have one bonus question. So we've already we've already mentioned Brad here in the next week or so is actually gonna do his March March ninth. March ninth. Counting down the days. He's gonna do his first Dungeons and Dragons session he's never played before. So I thought, okay all of you are just the experts. What advice would you have for somebody like Brad who's just dipping their toes into D and D? So, so I, I, I think, I think I want to be an archer if that helps anybody at all. Okay. So like ranger, elf. Or, yeah, ranger. Yeah. Or, or fighter possibly. Okay. All right. There are so many layers of advice. Um, <laughs> I guess like I'll kick us off here. Like okay. broad strokes advice. Don't take yourself too seriously. A big part of the game is rolling the dice and the percentages are not going to work out in your favor a lot of the time. And it's going to be so much more fun if you're like, I, I biffed it. <laughs> I missed that shot. <laughs> and now something fun and exciting is going to happen because of it. And that's all part of the game. I think it's very easy when you're a new player to get caught up in, um, I have to I have to succeed. I have to slay the monster. I have to dungeon the dragon, as it were. And uh, <laughs> so much more of the game is failure than you think it's going to be. And that's so much fun. I like it. Yeah. I think that's actually really good advice. I'm just going to build on, I'm going to steal that and build upon it. I think that, yeah, it's really easy when, especially for your first character to come in and really have a very clear image of what this character is going to be. Right. Like, you know, I, I you know, people who sh- I've, I played people who show up and they're like, you're like, Oh, you want to play, you want to play Batman. Like I yeah. can tell what you want to play is Batman. And, uh, that that way lies madness because again, yeah, the dice are going to disappoint you. So create a character. They're going to be good at things. They're going to be bad at other things, and be open to them failing. And remember that um, it's not about as long as dice are being rolled, you're winning at telling the story, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you don't need to worry about whether you hit or miss. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think that, I think that that's that would be the best advice. Be be open to the fun of the failure that will inevitably happen. I found it helpful to start thinking of myself not as the character, but as the uh, writer's room in charge of the character's development, uh, where it's like bad things can happen to this character or this character can fail or mess up or whatever. And that doesn't need to upset me because it can be very fun to be a writer who's making a character absolutely go through it. Uh, and it, it takes a lot of the edge out of combat because it's, it stops being like, I need to win. I must win D&D. Trying to win D&D is one of the most uh, dangerous mindsets a beginner player can have. <laughs> Again, because a lot of it is luck of the dice. It's like, I want to do this cool thing that will let me win. And then the dice say no. And it's like, well, now I feel frustrated and stymied because my goal is win. Uh, but if your goal is tell a fun story with your little guy... Uh, then it can be very helpful to sort of step back from the little guy and be like, what can I do to this little guy to make him more interesting? <laughs> well, to, to be fair, anytime I have a chance to role play, I always role play as a female. So my, my little gal, <laughs> little, my little guy, gender neutral. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, Nora, what do you got for him advice wise? If you're playing a ranged character, if you're within five feet of an enemy that you want to attack, you'll yes. get disadvantage on it. So that's just very important to keep <laughs> He's in mind. He's dropping the you know rules what? on Wait. you. Wait. 
my advice, if you're going to play a ranged character for your first time, don't go ranger, go rogue. Ooh. You'll enjoy, you'll, you'll, it's easier to get out of danger and you'll enjoy the massive amounts of dice you'll roll. You can, cause you can still have like a crossbow or something or maybe even yep. a short bow, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Rogues can, rogues can get sneak attack on any ranged weapon and they automatically get proficiency with at least short bows and crossbows. So. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just like, so if I'm, I'm repping something that Sophia probably would have mentioned if she had another piece of recommendation because she has this problem a lot with, with Danny, uh, her character and rolling with difficulty. But um, yes. yeah, just a little uh, mechanics thing that was, but it was implemented for the sake of D&D, even though if you kind of think about it for more than the two seconds in real life, it's not really all that realistic. <laughs> yeah, mechanical advice. Pay attention to melee range versus actual ranged attack. And um, also maybe don't dump constitution if you want to have <laughs> I love dumping constitution. It's objectively a bad choice. Yeah, I, I, the, I was thinking about this too, Braggs. I was going to give you a piece of advice. Um, don't um, don't do what you would do as Brad. Um, do what your character would do. And one of my favorite moments where I just didn't make a lot of friends, we were playing in college and I played um, a, a very, I think it was almost evil chaotic thief. I, at every chance I could, stole from the party and blamed it on NPCs. And I... The, when you choose alignment and everything else, you're actually choosing like, um, how would your character act in certain situations? I had the most selfish thief that was only in for itself and, and it upset some of the other players, but it did create a lot of interesting scenarios because the question always came down to, could you depend on me or not? Um, and I found that to be a lot of fun from my perspective. It's not who I am as a person, <laughs> but I think part of the whole idea of, um, tabletop rpgs is uh like getting into character and doing something that you know you can explore a little bit that you know for me that darker side of my personality that was kind of a lot of fun to tap into but i love all this advice i I especially love the advice about like don't get attached to your characters i've i've gravitated towards uh dungeon crawl classics more so than D &D because (laughs) i love my my favorite thing about dcc is you start level zero with like four or five characters and all of them are pretty much going to die. And you're lucky to have one live. And then that's the one that goes to level one. And um, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of mayhem in DCC more so than I think, you know, typical 5e D&D right now. But it's, it's closer to the 3.5 rules, if, if, uh, yeah. if I remember correctly. I it, love the various offshoot games that are like D&D, but with none of the safeties. Uh, yeah. I recall I played one session of Hackmaster one time, which was like that for 3.5. Uh, all I remember about that game is that one of our party read something that was uh, a we discovered a rune of eye implosion, uh, which wasn't great because <laughs> he already only had one eye left. So, <laughs> oh, good stuff. Jesus. Yeah. I just picked up Dungeon Crawl Classics. I'm super excited. I'm trying to, I just pre-ordered a, a, a level zero funnel adventure, like you were saying. Um, actually, I think it's a ship. So uh, I'm, I'm very excited. I'm going to try and force my home game to play. My, oh, uh, D- to DCC. Play. <laughs> the great thing about DCC, you can do typical sword and sorcery, but you can also go, hey, I want to do some sci-fi elements um, into mm-hmm. it as well. Or they have a whole classic horror series. Uh, that's that's oh. a lot of fun too. I love DCC. Uh-huh. I think this adventure I picked up is it's called it's like Return to the Starless Sea or something. Yes, it's a that's little one of like, the famous ones. Aberration, spooky. I, I I'm excited to to hopefully give it a try. Should my players uh, have the patience, you're gonna love it. You're gonna love it. Well, um, 
Brad, let's get to the film proper. So the reason why we picked this one is it didn't do so hot when it got released in the theaters. Do you want to go back and and talk about 1981 when Dragon Slayer hit the scene? Sure. Yeah. Released. Um, we've got June 26 of 1981 with a reported budget of $18 million. Dragon Slayer makes $14.1 million during its run. Um, we are looking at an opening weekend of $2.4 million. That's good enough for sixth place. And Troy Sauer, listen to some of the films that he gets beat by. We have Superman 2, The Cannonball Run. Oh, Jackie Chan. Your, yes. Uh, <laughs> your Eyes Only, Stripes, and The Great Muppet Caper. Woo! Hell yeah. And then, um, surprisingly, um, Dragon Slayer sits at an 84. Sorry, not this part. 84% with the critics. But only a 62% with the audience. So the audience, much less than the, the critics. I was surprised by that. So, Oh, I actually kind of get that one. Weird um, enough. Is this, I, I'm just real curious. I know Brad and I have seen this before. Had anybody else seen this film before we kind of, I don't know, roped you into seeing, you know, talking about no, this? Never. No. Oh, wow. Is this a first time watch for everybody? Yeah. Oh, boy. I think so, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Troy, have you ever felt so old in your life? <laughs> I just want to kill myself. Sorry for being in my 20s. I'm, ar I'm already like just ARP cards coming in and people not knowing what Dragon Slayer is. <laughs> no, this is awesome. With like uh, every month you get a different film to stream. You know, you get your Dragon Slayer. You get your Dragon Slayers, right. Yeah. So it's, we get our VHSs, if you will. Yes. <laughs> or Betamax. Um Ooh. All right. So uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail behind the scenes, but uh, I, I am just kind of curious on some names to see if you uh, know any of these people. So Dragon Slayer is directed by Matthew Robbins. So he is a screenwriter and film director best known for his writing work with the American New Wave movement. Now, Red, you just said you're a big Star Wars fan. Yes. Okay. So Matthew Robbins, he ran with a very um, high profile crowd, okay, in the 70s. So he collaborated with numerous filmmakers within the movement, the new wave movement, including one, George Lucas, uh -huh. Walter Murch, and Steven Spielberg. And he worked on things like Sugarland Express, which is a Steven Spielberg film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Jaws. He has also worked frequently with Guillermo del Toro, writing his films Mimic, Crimson Peak, and Pinocchio. Oh, Oh. Yeah. Huh. So that's our director. Now the screenplay is done by Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins as well. Now it, this is the other thing. So if if you know Star Wars, you know Industrial Light and Magic, right? ILM. Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. So uh, a lot of people behind the scenes on this film went on to do some big stuff, and I'm going to talk about one in particular. Brad, you might want to talk about another one, but I want to concentrate yeah. on one, Mr. Chris Wallace. Does everybody know who Chris Wallace is? I do not. You don't? Okay. So Chris Wallace. I'll play along and say no to Troy. Okay. Brad doesn't know either. <laughs> um, Chris Wallace. He worked for ILM and Dragon Slayer. We'll talk about this a little bit. Dragon Slayer was sort of the first film that ILM worked on that was outside of anything that was Lucasfilms. Okay. Chris Wallace specifically was in charge of the dragon. Um, he gets a credit of close-up dragon. Okay, so the face in and of itself. There's a lot of people that worked on this thing. At the end of the day, it ended up being like a 40-foot dragon. Um, 
it's crazy. Animatronic. Animatronic, yeah. Like, I think operated by 16 people or something of that mm -hmm. nature. But Chris Wallace is, and I'm, I'm sure all of you have seen, like, Raiders of the Lost Ark from 1981. Okay, the Nazi face-melting scene when the Ark was open, oh. that's Chris Wallace's work. Um, you ever seen the movie Gremlins from 1984? Oh, no. Of course. Oh, yes. Chris Wallace designed the Gremlins um, for that film. Hey, um, once you know that, the design of the dragon stands out a quite lot a of bit. Sense. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you guys are horror movie fans, but did you happen to see the Jeff Goldblum remake of The Fly? Yes. Yes. Uh, last year I watched it for the first time. Okay. So he won an Academy Award for Best Makeup for The Fly. It was so good, they asked him to direct the sequel, The Fly 2, in 1989. So this guy's pretty revolutionary in this field of work. And he's even worked on stuff like Arachnophobia from 1990, um, Naked Lunch in 91. This one's for our good friend, Jose. He actually did special effects for uh, a film in 1995, Jade, um, which was this erotic thriller. Oh. Um, Brad, you, you wanted to talk about another person that worked behind yeah, the scenes? On I this? just wanted to say the name Phil Tippett because he did a lot of the uh, stop motion stuff for, for this film as well. Phil Tippett, as we know, also an industrial light magic guy, did Jurassic Park, RoboCop, recently released a film called Mad God, which is... Uh, Stop a motion, very unique stop motion film. Basically, it was a 20 year passion project for him. Um, he is one of the most important men in special effects. And uh, yeah, I believe he also did you do Howard the Duck too, Troy. I yeah. believe he did because he played, he's for ILM, so yeah, must have. Yeah, absolutely. So, there you go. So, those are just some, some big names behind the scenes when, when we talk about this film in front of the camera. Um, Peter McNichol as Galen. I think a lot of people might know him from Ghostbusters 2. He's Vigo. Vigo, yes. Oh, well, he's not Vigo, but he says, the, he says the name Vigo a lot. Yeah. Uh, I think other people, if, if they're you know big TV fans, he was on a, a series called Ally McBeal from 97 to 2002, which he became very popular for that. We get Caitlin Car Clark as Valerian. Um, a lot of theater and a lot, specifically Broadway and regional, Around this time period, people might know her from a film, Crocodile Dundee. She was in that as well. We get John Hallam as Tyrion. Now, he is, that's not the first time we've talked about him. We actually covered Flash Gordon from 1980. I don't know if anybody's a fan of that film. Oh, yeah. He was, uh, was he's he General, yeah, he's General Luro of the Hawkmen. So yeah. he's, he's kind of the side guy. Wait. Is that the one where Brian Blessed is like the boss of them? Yes. yes. I've been meaning to watch that movie specifically because of that. Yeah, he's Brian, he's Brian, he's kind of Brian Blessed's right hand Hawkman, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah, amazing. Um, Ralph Richardson plays Yorick of Cragenmore. And then last but not least, I just want to say this name again, Red, all for you because you're a big Star Wars fan. I don't know if you picked up that um, brother Jacobus was played by one. Oh, yeah. Emperor my Palpatine. Yeah. My boy go. Palpatine, yeah. Mr. He's Pal in it for two scenes yeah. and then he explodes. It's great. Good old yeah. Grandpa Palpatine. <laughs> Looks fantastic in yeah, this thing. He's very young Pal and sprightly. Palpatine. Yes. Pop, pop, Palpatine. A uh, little bit of production and development on this thing. So first of all, um, Brad and I had a chance to watch this thing together. And I, I pre-ordered this thing the minute it came out. But there was a 4K special edition of Dragon Slayer. Wow. This thing is absolutely fantastic. Brad, you can vouch for that, right? Yeah, I mean, it looks like it just came. I mean, it looks fantastic. Some of those, uh, you know, the 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 Whaley, well, and the North Wales landscapes and the Scottish lands. I mean, they just look spectacular. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, 
on this edition, you can get a lot of behind the scenes um, information from this featurette called the Slayer of All Dragons. It's actually five parts. There's audio commentary from director Matthew Robbins and Guillermo del Toro do an amazing commentary on it. More importantly, if you have the setup, it has probably one of the most amazing Dolby Atmos soundtracks out there. I mean, this thing shook the house. It is fantastic. It shook Brad's house too. We got in trouble playing it too loud. Um, we've talked about this a little bit already, but it is the second joint production between Paramount and Disney. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. The magic kingdom. The first movie they collaborated on together from studios was a Robin Williams film called Popeye from 1980. I don't know if oh anybody's run across that one. It's a live action oh, version. Popeye. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. And if you want to, if you want to know why this thing bombed, <laughs> the Disney crowd takes their kids to it. And obviously it's a little bit more gruesome than they expected. And then probably some of the adults stayed away because they thought it was a Disney film. Right. Um, and then all of a sudden you're getting boobies, Troy. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many more butts than I expected. <laughs> There's a lot. There's a lot of white butts in here. There could, there might, was more than butt. Yep. Um, but because the audience expected the Disney name to be solely children's entertainment, the film's violence, adult themes, brief nudity and butts, were somewhat controversial, though Disney did not hold the North American distribution rights. Um, Paramount did. And surprisingly, the film was rated PG. So keep in mind, we didn't have PG-13 at that time period, right? Oh, boy. According to our screenwriters, Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins, they got the inspiration for Dragon Slayer from the Sorcerer's Apprentice sequence in Fantasia. Oh, that's, yeah, that explains kind of everything. Yeah, that's where they borrowed um, really the story elements from. About 25% of the film's budget that Brad mentioned went specifically to the dragon special effects. Hey. The special effects were created by Industrial Light and Magic. We talked about this. The first use of ILM outside of a Lucasfilm production. We talked about Phil Tidbit. He had co-developed an animation technique for The Empire Strikes Back called Go Motion. It was a variation of stop motion. This led to the film's nomination for the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. However, it lost that year to Raiders of the Lost Ark, the only other visual effects nominee that year, whose special effects were also provided by ILM. And including the hydraulic 40-foot model, the dragon consists of 16 puppets dedicated to flying, crawling, or breathing fire. This film also got another Academy Award nomination. The score, which was composed by Alex North, it was nominated for Academy Award Unfortunately, it lost. It lost to Chariots of Fire. So, mm -hmm. I mean, if you're going to lose, you're going to lose to Chariots of Fire and Raiders of the Lost Ark. So there you go. Um, how about we take a quick break? When we come back, we're going to roll for initiative and see who's going to go first in the review for Dragon Slayer. So stay tuned. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Journey to a magical time when heroes and demons battle for the golden treasures and the human spoils of forgotten kingdoms. 
thrilled to the story of a legendary superhero who fights through all the torments of hell to save the woman he loves from the world's most powerful sorcerer. This is Sinbad's greatest adventure. The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. The sadistic magician shrinks the beautiful princess to the size of a tiny doll. Only Sinbad can save her. See the living skeleton, the attack of the two-headed bird, the dance of the deadly cobra woman, the spectacular battle between the one-eyed cyclops and the fire-breathing dragon. See the seventh voyage of Sinbad in the breathtaking motion picture miracle of Dinorama. The seventh voyage of Sinbad from Columbia Pictures, rated G, general audiences. Okay, and we're back. Does everybody have a D20? Are, are you ready to go? Right here. Okay. Here we go. Everybody's going to roll. Brad, I'll roll for you as well. Okay. Okay. Since you didn't bring yours. <laughs> Do you have a D20, Brad? Look, in the in the comedy film that would have been this podcast, I would have played the jock who hated all you all. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry for my past regret you know I, i'm sorry for no, it's, it's totally fair totally fair okay so we here we go you to roll dice and you would teach us to throw a football and yeah, yeah or, or say yeah. like yeah. you know montage. say a homophobic slur at some point <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's just what you know they the did in, the 80s. Yep. <laughs> what was the 80s 90s 90s, okay. it was the 90s. <laughs> all right here we go everybody i'm gonna roll yours first brad and then i'll roll mine so everybody start rolling here we go mm-hmm. ooch brad i'm sorry brad <laughs> uh-oh okay um, Sophia, what'd you roll? Rolled a one. <laughs> you did not roll a one. Are you serious? Austin, are you going to have to get that table of voices out? Uh, uh, I might have to make that table of voices. Okay. You just have to do it with the Danny voice, Sophia, honestly. <laughs> All right, that's fair. You do this twice in one week, why don't you? <laughs> All right, Austin, what did you roll? Uh, uh, not a one. I didn't come in too hot, though. I had rolled an eight. An eight? Uh-oh. Okay. Noir, what do you got? Uh, I rolled the same as I usually do with initiative. Never double digits. I also rolled an eight, though. Oh, I've got something for that, so don't worry about oh it. Uh, okay. Red, what did you roll? Also a one. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I used my, my dice tray with a dragon on it and my metal die with a dragon in it, and they both oh, betrayed man. me. Man. intentions to talk about this movie. <laughs> this is terrible, Brad. You rolled a three. Um, okay. <laughs> I rolled lucky 13. Oh, good start. No yeah. one cracks a 15, Jesus. All right, so we got we to gotta do a couple of tiebreakers here. I, I figured this was going to happen, so we're going to do a little trivia, all right? Oh, no. So we're going to start with Austin and Noir, and I've, I've got this first piece of trivia. Um, we'll, we'll just say whoever knows it, you just shout it out, okay? So in the original 1979 AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide, Gary Gygax lists many of the authors and stories that inspired him. What is the appendix letter and what is it called? And 
Oh, man. Oh, did you get it, Austin, first? Austin got uh, it first. Okay. I was going to bring up Appendix N before when you were talking about Conan, how Tower of the Elephant is in Appendix N. Yes. I've, oh yeah. God. All right. So, and Austin's talked about Appendix N enough so that I, I, I retain the information, but I got it just. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give you the plus one, so we're going to adjust your score to nine. Um, all right, Sophie and Red, are you ready for this one? Let's do it. Honorable combat, Red. <laughs> See, I got I got two of these questions. I feel like one is uh, I'll just go. The five main classes, not counting subclasses, in first edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons oh, no. were cleric, fighter, magic user, thief, and what's the fifth one? Acrobat. No. Do you know, <laughs> Sophia? Is it monk? It is monk. That's right. They added monk was first. Oh, my dad's gonna <laughs> disown me because I recently inherited a bunch of my dad's second edition books from when he was playing as a teen. But uh, all of my childhood, he would tell us stories about how when he played first edition, he played a monk, and so it's drilled into my brain. So this one goes out to Lou Ricciardi. <laughs> <laughs> was monk too violent for the cartoon that they had to call her acrobat? I think it got rebranded later on. I think it they, got rebranded. They, they changed the name, I believe, yeah. is the reason. All right. Well, I'm even though I rolled the highest, it would be unfair for me to go first. Um, <laughs> so the order we're going to go is Austin, Noir, Brad, Sophia, and Red, based on our initiative <laughs> scores. So, Austin, you're up first. Oh, I was so nervous to go first, and then I rolled that eight, and I thought, I'm so safe, thank <laughs> Hold God. Your Hold your action. Hold your action. You get one oh. action, and uh, we get to hear what you think of Dragon Slayer. Okay, so what do I think of Dragon Slayer? Um, first off, shout out to Red for telling me to watch it for free, um, which I appreciated and then also didn't appreciate because there were so many ads. I think Is it on Tubi? It's, it's on, on Pluto. Pluto. Pluto TV. Yeah. I think it's an hour 45 or something. It took me two and a half hours to watch this movie. Oh my yeah. God. I paused it uh, and I saw how many ad breaks were in. I was like, this is still better than spending $4 on this movie. <laughs> anyway, um, so I think maybe the best way to... This is a movie that I enjoyed and I'm also not sure I would recommend people. It's a movie that is... M- is made i feel like in some ways kind of almost sloppily there's a couple like editing choices that i that kind of befuddled me almost like there were scenes missing (laughs) almost like (laughs) they cut something out that had been there um and at the same time it feels like a movie that was made with a lot of love it definitely feels like a movie by made by people who had opinions on fantasy and i respect Mm. that a lot there is a couple lines in this movie that i i noted because i actually i I really liked them um uh that's not it here it is uh there's a scene where we're learning about um valerian is talking about how she is how she's been pretending to be a boy and the lottery that takes um a virgin every uh, what is it twice a year or something like that uh yeah, so to be a sacrifice to the dragon so that it will not raise the kingdom and that she's been a boy to, to hide that fact. And she makes some, she makes a comment about the princess not being in the lottery. And she says something to the effect of like, oh, if you're rich, you can just buy your way out of the lottery. And then she said a, a line I really like, uh, which is my father's poor. Lots of fathers are poor. And I thought that was like a really insightful kind of line because it's very simple, but you can tell there's almost like 
there's guilt that she is one of these many people who shouldn't have to suffer it. Like no one should have to suffer it. It's totally unfair. The princess is not suffering it, but she also feels like she should maybe be at risk as well. And lo and behold, when the time comes back around, she doesn't shy away from putting her name into the, uh, into the, into the, the pool. She recognizes like this unjustness and that's also unjust. She's abstaining from it because there's lots of poor fathers and you really feel when she hits that there's lots of poor fathers. What she's really saying is like, there's lots of daughters, right? Yeah. And I really liked that. And the second one was when the princess visits, um, I can't even remember his name now, the main character. Galen. Galen. Thank you. Visits him in the in the the cell, and she's like, Well, don't be so sad. The king uh, is even is very even-handed. Like it surely could not have gone badly. And then he like steps out of the shadow, and he's all like beat up. And she's like, What happened to you? And he goes, Twas the king's even-handedness. Uh, <laughs> I thought those were both really good scenes, and they feel like they belong in a better movie. But <laughs> but I did enjoy, I did enjoy it. They clearly had thoughts. The church stuff comes out of nowhere a little bit, but it's very <laughs> poignant. It's it's pointed, right? About the nature of power. And in a way, it's very D&D because the only people who are capable of dealing with the threat in the fiction are uh, motivated individuals, enterprising adventurers. And the systems of power that exist really only exist to perpetuate um, either the violence that's done against the people or to pretend that they are uh, part of the solution when they're not the uh, the church is like, Oh yeah, God, the God could have knocked down those rocks definitely could have been him. Uh, and then at the end, when the King comes out and just stabs the dead dragon and goes, I am the dragon slayer. This movie really cares a lot. And I feel like uh, thinks a lot about what fantasy should be like. And especially has like a kind of same ethos as that old school D&D. I really appreciate it for that reason. Um, and even, even as I think there's some kind of like flaws that, that don't really raise it up to a great movie to me, but what, what did you think? So I, I think it's interesting that you gravitated to some of the social and political aspects of the film, because mm-hmm. I think kids experiencing this thing in the eighties would have never picked up on the things that you picked up on, because I think uh, our director and and he's also the wrote the screenplay, they are saying something very specific about religion, government, um, power, all of those things. It and it's all there. What did you think about the fantasy elements, specifically, you know, the sorcery, the drag, and everything else? I mean, this is pre CGI, and the, these are a lot of um, effects being borrowed from, you know. ILM is trying to take their space wizard stuff and actually put it into a sword and sorcery play. Was it successful? I really liked the dragon. I thought the dragon was affecting. Uh, I, I feel like I have very specific taste on what a dragon should look like to me. The best dragon I've ever seen on screen is still cat Smaug from the Hobbit animated movie from Rankin oh. and Bass. To me, that's the best dragon I've ever seen. So design, design aside, I, I really, there's the scene where near the end where he's like waiting to jump on it as it's crawling out and when it comes out underneath him, it's just massive. I really bought that there was a huge creature here. I felt the weight of it. Um, And I'm not a person who generally like, and and like some of the stuff is kind of like, it shows its age, like the dragon flying, but I watched like five seasons of the CW flash show. Like that stuff doesn't bother (laughs) me. I'm chill with some bad CGI. Um, So overall those effects really, really impressed me. I think that there's an element of fantasy here that is a little, the, the sword and sorcery 
is a little bare bones for my fantasy tastes. I prefer things that are a little more heightened in general, I think. So the fact that like he has this powerful magic item and he mostly levitates stuff, it, it's very old school TV where it's like wizards would get like one spell a day, like very early on. And your power came from magic items, which is kind of like, he's mostly a normal dude who gets a ma- uh, an amulet that lets him, of course the ending, he, the power's in him, but uh, an amulet that lets him do some magic and a weapon that lets him kill dragons. And that's what makes him a, a shield that protects him from fire. And that's what makes him a hero. So personally, I prefer a little bit higher on the magic, but I think they definitely nail that vibe um, of that low magic setting it and it feels very rooted in that fantasy of the time okay i love it all right noir you're up what do you think you didn't, you didn't have to worry about going first that was an amazing answer <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> exactly i yeah. was worried i was gonna be harsh on it i tend to be hard my brother thinks i'm way too harsh on movies no i everything a five so i i i <laughs> look you like what you like right you'll and you mm-hmm. you you don't like certain things it just it doesn't hit your taste it's all about the articulation can you really like zone in on I like I like the fact that you're bringing up like the dialogue moments, the examples. Too many people a lot of times will say, "Well, that was stupid" or "I didn't like that," etc. But they can't quantify it, right? I mean, we're all armchair critics to some degree. It's just <laughs> what's your what's your approach to it? So, Thank I'm you. really curious where you're going to go, Dora. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to agree with Austin on a lot of it. Just like as far as like the editing and kind of the the stitching of the scenes together, it seemed a bit. Uh, jarring at times but honestly it didn't really do all that much to kind of affect my overall enjoyment of the movie I actually ended up really enjoying it a lot um I I was surprised by how like I, I guess piggybacking off of what Austin said how like thought out this world was uh, and especially in like the political and the social scene and in retrospect it makes me kind of understand why this movie bombed if this was made by Disney and like you said <laughs> children were seeing it expecting something not even just the gruesomeness but just like the themes that were sort of played here i was really impressed by that subplot with elspeth um Mm. they're like they could have i guess they kind of introduce her as sort of the naive princess but uh i i was really impressed by how they by how she really kind of decided to take a stand against the injustice and uh in that second lottery scene that we see uh, effectively rig the thing in order to force her to um, be the one chosen. And it made me like her so much that I kind of wish she didn't go and, and, and die and sacrifice herself uh, honorably, which like, I get it, but like, come on, Galen was already there. He was on his way over. He didn't, he didn't have to, but I can also understand to some extent. Um, but they couldn't they couldn't show like a severed foot unless she went into that cave. Which that, that, okay, no. what are we gonna oh, do with this severed foot? Another, another thing that I was impressed by was the CGI and in or not CGI the special effects. And in retrospect, it makes sense that ILM did this. I was like, that's a they didn't have to show a foot getting chomped off, but I guess they did it. And with all these like dragon baby puppets too, no less. I'm like wow, yeah, it's a Very shocker. Honest. If you haven't seen it before, yeah. it's a shocker. Yeah. And um, I guess also speaking to the 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 non presence of heightened magic or whatever, they I don't know whether it was something that they had intended on writing writing because they understood the limitations of the special effects. But they mentioned something at the end where it's like magic is dying. Like, I think it was Ulrich that said it like it's good that I'm dying because then the dragons will die too. And I thought that that was like an interesting thing to put at the end because it then made me realize that what's left is the kingdom and the church that 
are set up as essentially the antagonists of uh, of the um, of the movie. Uh, and I, I so overall, I was really impressed by the themes that they had sort of introduced and played with. And um, I'm of the opinion, kind of like I think Mr. Rogers from from Mr. Rogers Neighborhood kind of had this opinion when it came to like the complex jazz inspired music that he had. Like the children will understand, and and they will and they will um, they will be able to take in some amount of it. So it I he. So he kind of shied away from like making the music simple because the children wouldn't understand. And so I think that maybe even if not all children sort of understood and picked up the themes, I think the ones that did really would have benefited from it in the end. I like that. Um, I, I think it's very interesting. You guys are picking up on something. There is a very distinct at the beginning of the film when they talk about it used to be, you know, the skies were dotted with dragons and wizards yeah. and, and everything else. And this film very much has the, um, when you talk about height magic, I think this thing is going in the opposite direction of just saying, Hey, we're going to talk about the final chapter of sword and sorcery. Absolutely. And I think Very it, Jack Vance. Yeah. Um, and when you, when you find out that, okay, Mickey mouse inspired this with the sorcerer's apprentice, and this is going to be a bumbling, you know, apprentice magician. Um, it all just kind of comes together and it really does become a very interesting social political statement as much as it's a sort of the death of fantasy. And then what is going to replace that? Um, and it has this very melancholic ending uh, that, again, general audiences may look at that and go, ooh, I, I don't know if I like that. But if you do appreciate maybe that type of film with a little bit more maturity, it, it might resonate correctly. So you're uh, saying that Dizzy's been woke since 1981. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't like that term, but I do think no, you I have a, agree. you have a filmmaker that, uh, I mean, some, the best films in my opinion are the ones that you can look at out in the surface and go, that's super entertaining, go down a level. And then what else are they, are they talking about? Go down another level. And is there some kind of, uh, symbolism myth, you know, mythos that it's trying to create? I mean, that's why Star Wars is is so good. You go back to the original Star Wars, what Lucas did. The thing actually works on a couple of different levels. It's a great space opera. It's a fantastic hero's journey. And it actually talks about religion to a certain degree. There's all those different layers to it, which is why it's sort of endured as long as it has. Um, but that, that means you get to talk about it, Brad. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think this is very... Spielbergian in style. Like, obviously, the guy worked with Spielberg, worked with Lucas. It's got that feel to it. Um, <clears throat> Galen's in his his hero's journey. I, I like that he's like a willing participant, and he doesn't need to be persuaded to go on this journey. He once he's called, he goes, and he knows that he is the hero in this in this story. Uh, he is going to slay the dragon, and that, and he knows it. Um, so I, I like that he's not some whiny hero that needs to be pulled along in his own story. Um, and yeah, I, I like that they treat the dragon as like Bruce the shark. Like we're waiting to, to see that dragon and we wait and we wait. And when you get the reveal of the head and it's looking into the camera, like it's real menacing. It looks fantastic. And I think like letting the audience wait to see that really pays off. Now, you know, it's probably a budgetary thing like it was in jaws. So, you know, they always have a reason why they hold off, but it, it's a benefit to the audience. Um, 
you know, as a sword and sorcery film, I, I really like this now full context, like Troy and I watch this together and we don't get to do that often. And this is a film that I've seen plenty of times growing up in Troy, you know, so this was like a, a, a shared moment for Troy and I, so I'm a little, so our childhoods my, my, came together and they, they did. Yeah, it, they was, did. it was magical, you know, but your childhood was like 10 years older than my childhood. Okay, so Brad, really, we all know I'm old guy. Uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> but I, I, I really, I really like this film just as a, as a simple hero's journey. We have a fellowship, maybe if you will, and we're going to go on this, uh, on this adventure. I like how some of the people in their fellowship don't even get to talk and barely are on camera. Um, but it, it's got some nice twists and turns. We've got the the evil king who is just an absolute bastard. Like when he comes out at the very end, he's like, I've slayed the dragon. You're like, God, your you're the daughter worst. just died. Yeah, your daughter just died. But here's <laughs> your here's your yep. here's your uh, moment to be in the newspaper. So telling. So, so yeah, telling. yeah, yeah. It never mourns her, mourns her death, but um, you know we'll we'll kind of do a photo op uh, by killing this dragon. Um, also, I love the, the fact that like when the dragon dies, it's like guts are hanging out and it's all bloody and gory and I mean. For this to be PG thirteen, I get it. There was no PG or to be PG because there was no PG thirteen is unreal. Like I love that they could kind of go for some stuff in here, and it's violence and and uh, you know it's got a little bit of nudity in it. Uh, but I think my biggest takeaway is just like when you care for a film and you shoot a film with a great cinematographer and you have great direction. Like when you watch it 40 years after its release, you see it and you're like, this thing could be released today and it would look fantastic compared to other stuff. Cause like, it, it's just, it looks like a million bucks. Like it, well, it should be like 14 million bucks, but it, it looks like <laughs> a lot of money. Um, cause it, 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 they're on location, they're on sets. I mean, the, the kind of lake of fire at the end, like that's real fire. And he is really hot because he is by fire. You can't get that with CGI. Now it's dangerous, but you know, he's standing next to fire. Um, and, and like having the rotoscope stuff and, and having, you know, when they fight and their the stuff hits each other and, and, you know, it makes the sparks and it, I just, I, I'm a sucker for all that stuff. So I really think, um, Maybe it's tough for people who didn't have the nostalgia for this to kind of see its greatness, uh, or maybe we're blinded by nostalgia, but I really think this is great. Okay. And, uh, I got a sidebar, Troy. Yeah. So one of the things when I was doing research for this, uh, at the very bottom of the Wikipedia article, do you know what it says? See also in the Wikipedia article says, see also. Ooh. Yeah, so it's like it'll link to something else that you know this film could be related to. Do you take a guess of what what could be listed in the see also list in Wikipedia? I have no clue. I mean, uh, list of films featuring eclipses. So, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So to, that's funny. Yeah. So in our in our little movie day that we had, we watched three films. We watched this, and then we watched a a Hong Kong or a Japanese. Like, Japanese film called uh, Haunting Samurai. Then we watched Dune. 
Haunting Samurai has a film is a film that features a very long eclipse scene. So unbeknownst to ourselves, we were watching films with uh, eclipses. eclipses. Sadly, Dune did not complete the trifecta, but we yeah. we had two films in a row that had eclipses. So uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. But no, I, I I like this film. I you know it's in like the 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 willows and all Deathstalker, like all that where I just lumped them together. And, and 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 love it yeah love it there i said it i love this film it's okay to love it it's all right i no, i absolutely love it okay all right what about you sophia what was your experience with this yeah so this was my first time watching it uh and i think after having seen it for the first time now i completely understand why critics liked it and audience liked audiences liked it a little less i think that makes a lot of sense because this is at once very simple and a very complex movie uh because on the one hand that dragon looks amazing that that effect is so cool. <laughs> I could not look away from it. And that is a very simple, immediate response of, oh, Big Lizard is awesome. Can we talk? Uh, can we just real quick? I just, I just, yeah. I want to hear you guys gush over this. Because if you don't, I think you you lost your soul <laughs> in, in some plane or something while you're around on a spell jammer. But that whole sequence of him taking the shield and the dragon slayer spear going through the lake of fire, doing battle with the dragon. I think that's one of the most impressive action set pieces out of the eighties. When you take a step back and just forget everything else you think about it, but just take those 10 or 15 minutes. I don't know what you guys think. I will watch that sequence over and over again, especially in high definition and go, Holy cow. It looks amazing to Brad's point to real fire. I don't know if Peter McNichol like got four degree, fourth degree sunburns is that thing. I don't know, but I, I don't know what you guys think. I mean, that that entire sequence, I think, is super impressive for cinema. Yeah, I mean, what really, I mean, the I really liked the sequence as well. But really, what what kept me watching and drew me in was just the knowledge that all of this was real. I'm pretty sure, like like you were saying, that was real fire. That's a real dragon. He's not really getting stabbed, but you know, but mm-hmm. like, I yeah, the 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 special effects really kind of like captured my attention. I'm I'm a nut for that kind of stuff anyway. And I also noticed like small things where it's just like. Like you were saying, like that he's getting awfully close to that fire. Right? <laughs> that seems a bit too realistic for safety reasons. But yeah, no, absolutely. The the dragon sequence was so cool. Mm-hmm. I love how they ease you into it too, because you know we've seen little bits and pieces of the dragon throughout the film. Yeah, they all look very cool. It's again the 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 jaws shark effect of it's monster movies need to learn this lesson. It's so much better if you don't show us the monster until the end. But. Uh, you know, before we even see the dragon in its entirely, we see these little baby dragon puppets and they're mm-hmm. already their own very cool special effect. Like, oh, I I love those little guys doing their bites or whatever. I mean, it sucks for the princess, but it was great for me, the viewer. <laughs> <laughs> Rip to her, but I'm different. But even, yeah, yeah, but like even there, like immediate, okay, you kind of understand the aesthetic that we're working in and they lo- they're, they're real puppets, they fit into the world. And so it primes you to then see kind of the style of the creature, the the dragon later on. And that sequence itself is more of like a slow build than you would kind of expect, or particularly with like modern fantasy and action movie sensibilities. Like they're going to be a lot of hard action fast. And instead this was very much building dread as you see more and more of the dragon and more and more of its lair until eventually you get to the actual fight, which is itself a very small part of the sequence. Uh, and it, I think it, it works so well. It's by far my favorite part of the film. Oh, I agree. Anything else? You're just going to concentrate on that sequence? <laughs> uh, no, you know, I think it, it, like that flips a switch in my brain of 
I like fantasy. I like dragons. I like movies that have dragons in them. I'm enjoying this a lot as an audience member. And I think that that's very easy to connect to. Uh, but I do think this film is doing a lot of much more complicated things that makes sense to me that critics might have caught up to and audiences might have been confused by. It's crazy that this movie's got themes of like Christianity ousting pagan traditions and shit. Like, that's insane. <laughs> Does it work? It's cool that it's in there. And it's I, I like that there's more beneath the surface, but I can completely understand why like an audience might not initially connect to that unless they are already primed to enjoy the genre, which explains in my mind some of the lower audience scores. Um, personally, I like that there was a lot of complexity to it. I think similarly to Austin, not similarly to Austin, opposite of Austin, uh, I kind of didn't mind that it was like lower magic as a setting. I think it was very cool that they set it in this particular moment of magic is leaving the world and being replaced by our, you know, tr- uh, religious traditions and the systems of governments and things and we have to see our heroes deal with almost being outmoded by the world they live in after this last big heroic act um i think it definitely suffers at points from the edit a little bit uh particularly in the first half i think it can be a little bit confusing to be thrown into it i don't want to be too hard on it because i think part of the flaw here was that watching it on pluto tv there were ads every like five minutes i genuinely wonder (laughs) if pluto tv has cut things because occasionally i thought that a scene was like literally cut short i was like what I didn't know. I didn't notice anything weird with the editing, so I, I'm I'm yeah. curious to know if that's I kind of I want to go watch it on Pluto TV yeah. now. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Uh, well, I wonder if it was like... maybe trimming like seconds off of the end of scenes mm-hmm. that we were missing the transition um, because there were a lot of ad breaks. So I'd be I've curious never seen them do that on Pluto TV. TV. So I, I'm inclined yeah. to not give the well, movie it's... as much credit as you guys are giving it. <laughs> well, no, no, I'm sure that Pluto TV just decided to sabotage the effectiveness well, of the edit. <laughs> as a quick example, <laughs> as a quick example, when um, when uh, Valerian is trying on the dress for or like holding up the dress, she's going to put on a dress for the first time. Her father comes in and is like, "Put that away. Someone will see you." And then. Then she's outside of the dress. Like that was the cut. Did, is that how it's cut to everyone else? She walks outside in the dress. Well, I then she walks outside in the dress, but there is no more conversation with her where she's like, "No, it is time." You know, like yeah, no, that was the version I saw too. There okay, was, yeah, I, I think there is a little bit of an exchange. It it's not much, but I think I have to go back and look. Yeah, but that, now I wonder too if I misremember, but it I remember it feeling so jarring. It felt like there should have been drum roll, and then she's outside. She's walking outside in the dress, and okay. uh, I, like that was a moment to me. That I was like, well, that's and occasionally them walking between places, like not big journeying, but like momentary editing where like they're walking here and then they're outside and you're like, wait, there was there's there wasn't uniform uniformity of motion there. Okay. Makes sense. I think overall though, it it kind of speaks to, especially in the beginning half of the film, they throw a lot of cool lore about this world at you very quickly. And some of it is just sort of implied, especially a lot of the rules of they're sorcerers and they get mad. They can do magic. What kind of magic? It almost looks like sleight of hand at times, but sometimes it is real. They're making fireballs. Um, and I, I can understand how that would be very confusing uh, to like a first time audience. Uh, I love high fantasy stuff. So I was primed to be like, we got we got wizards or sorcerers or whatever. They're doing magic. There's going to be a lot of fire effects. These guys, they got a dragon that needs slang. Um, so I, I definitely think, it, you know, if you look at it very critically, it's easy to see where an audience might go astray, but I do think that it benefits from sitting with it for 20 minutes and getting into more of the uh, direct action sequences where you, you get to the village and the dragon's lair and then it all starts to flow much more smoothly. So it's just sort of a hump at the beginning. Uh, overall, I liked it quite a bit and I, I can't say enough good things about how much I like that dragon. Uh, it does 
the like Ghostbusters gremlins sort of puppet that's been superimposed into the scene look is one of my favorite things in all of movies. So I was I was having a blast <laughs> with all of the dragon sequences. I, I think one of the reasons why Guillermo del Toro works with him is because he's gone on record saying it is the in Gilmore's uh, mind, it's the best on-screen dragon that's ever been shot, in his opinion. Oh, yeah. So that's why he he puts so much into, like, the audio commentary and everything else. Okay, Red, you've All already... Right, we got, like, <laughs> Red has been making faces. I know. She's already I, I, dropped sorry, hints sorry. that she's ready to tear into that. I, I can't wait. Boy, I'm ready for it. This is what it feels like, Troy, when you see me just, like, ready to just absolutely tear something apart. No, I, I'm looking at Red right now. I wish people could see this, but... <laughs> She has this same reaction that I had when, when you made me watch Solar Babies. Um, so I can't wait to see, or hear, excuse me, what her reaction is. So, all right, Red, you're up. I mean, I don't want to be the asshole about it, but like, uh, first things first, obviously, the dragon looks fantastic. I kept bracing myself for it to look jank as all fuck, and instead it was amazing every time they showed a new part of it. Because initially I was like, oh, they really don't want to show this dragon, and then I was like, oh no, they're teasing me. I see. Uh, and, and I thought that was very impressive, and then even when they started doing crazy environmental effects, like when the sorcerer rocks up and starts summoning a full storm in the background, I was like, that's damn impressive looking. That actually looks really good. I have to like look to see how they comped the foreground into the shot to make the sky change like that. Um, VFX wise, I think this movie is very, very impressive. Uh, I think that Galen is by far the weakest link in this movie. His writing is <laughs> borderline nonsensical between scenes. He is a completely different character depending on what scene he's in and what context is necessary. Uh, character writing wise, the highlight is the princess. I think she's quite interesting mm. and it's a shame she gets herself killed so quickly because she has a legitimately very interesting arc. It's just a shame that we speed run through it because we need more time for Galen to go through his personality shifts. Um, I think that Valerian and the princess, weirdly, for a movie made in the 80s, have the most depth out of the entire cast. Uh, 100%. Yeah. Valerian, I think, definitely has this. I wish they um, talked. Yeah, I wish they talked. I wish they'd had more time to hang out. I wish the underlying hypocrisy of Valerian's stance uh, came up more because the fact that the princess isn't in the lottery is framed as like the true, the system is truly unjust and the wealthy and powerful can simply exclude themselves. Or you could wear pants and you could also be excluded from the system and then you're the hero of the village. And I, like when she comes out wearing the dress, I simply think that were I a village girl and I just learned that the hero of the village who just saved the day has secretly been a girl this whole time hiding this fact so that she would not get risk her life risked twice a year like I've been having my life risked twice a year. I would not immediately be her best friend. I think I would be a little bit pissed at her. Just just a smidge. Um, you, get a, you get a hint of that with the oh, one the father, religions. I think, but they don't do enough with it. Well, the father is just like, oh, I wish I'd been that smart. And it's like, mm, I bet you do. Like, <laughs> it, That's kind of where it ends. Yeah. Well, I everyone think, stares at her. She comes out, too. Like, there's the notion that's surprising, but also... Well, that that's they're the like, 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 oh, oh man, Caleb took away his penis. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that wizard's more powerful than I thought. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that they could have done there, but they didn't because the characterization in this movie is a mile wide and an inch deep. Like none of it actually makes sense if you look at it for more than two seconds. They, there's all this implied interesting. The part that immediately made me think like, I'm not going to get this movie is unfortunately the very beginning of the movie where of course the sorcerer does that thing where he's like, oh, you want me to prove my magic to you very well, stab me in the heart. And the guy's like, 
okay. And then we we all get the, the storytelling cues. He's gonna die because he locks Galen in. And Galen's like, no, somebody stop him. So, like, so this man is just going to kill himself for no reason. And Galen has figured this out. And then he does, he dies. And Galen does not go like, why did he do that? He just treats yeah. it as fact. Like any human being would either question why their beloved mentor slash father figure just allowed himself to be stabbed in the heart rather than going to stop the dragon or be like he must have had some kind of plan but what was it i i'm just not smart enough to figure it out and either of those would have worked but instead they chose neither so instead he's like wowie zowie the amulet has chosen me and now i can be a wizard again it's like your father figure died in front of you yesterday and i cannot believe that that's the thing his, his characterization does not exist he, he starts the movie off as Mickey Mouse Sorcerer's Apprentice futzing around with his newfound telekinesis. And then he ends the movie as like classical Greek hero. I have this armament granted me by my lady love, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then at some point he's like, I thought I was a wizard, but I never had any power. And it's like, you didn't? What, what, what indication was there that you did not have any power? You've been using magic the whole movie. Are we supposed to believe that it's just the amulet? And that's that's not how it worked for your mentor, who we only ever saw doing magic when he held the amulet? Like there's an implied magic system, but we never get enough of it to actually understand how it works. So they have to keep explaining things to us moments before they come into play. So do you, um, do you think that the reason, so as an audience member, you have to attach yourself to a character, right? Well, I don't need to attach myself to a character. I just need the characters to act like people that make sense. Like princess elsbeth she has a very simple arc she's initially like the system is unfortunate but it's you know it's as fair as we can make it and you know my life is not spared and galen is like uh that's not true your dad has been insulating you from this and she's immediately ride or die for like i must make this right and she does in fact die for this and it's it's deeply unfortunate uh but she ha she had goes through a full arc that that makes sense galen does not he basically starts and ends the movie in roughly the same place Oh, I wish I were a wizard. Uh, and then he goes through a bunch of things in the middle that don't particularly make sense when chained together. Uh, it's just, it's it's very odd. The background characters make the most sense. And even then, it's a little bit shaky, especially because I think the, the thing about the advent of Christianity is extremely prominent in the movie, but not suitably contextualized. It just feels like a weird thing happening in the background. Uh, you get like Palpatine showing up, Briefly being like, yes, God could have done that. And then he gets toasty fried in front of this dude. And the dude is like, that guy was onto something. I should immediately take his place as boss of the God guys in the village. And it's like, oh yeah, that's, that seemed like a really good indicator of the power of his. Nobody makes decisions that make sense in this movie. And it really makes it hard for me to get suitably invested in the story to just be able to switch my brain off and be like, ooh, Dragon Go Burr. Uh, and that includes the sorcerer guy whose big plan was like, I'm going to... Uh, kill myself, be dehydrated so that my apprentice can carry me from point A to point B. Then I will be reconstituted very briefly, and then I will turn myself into a magic bomb to take out the dragon. The apprentice is only in this movie to move him around and to take a really long time to figure out it's not even a riddle. Pour him into the burning lake. He walks into the lair. Wow, a burning lake. That doesn't sound relevant. I'll just leave. I was almost yelling at my TV. It's like, there's that can only be one thing. And then the eclipse somehow reminds him like, wait a minute, I've seen something that looks significantly more like a burning lake than the eclipse reflected on the water, which I assume is meant to remind him of like, wait a minute, the one thing my dying mentor number two said that I probably should have been paying more attention to. It's just, 
I, I, it, it's frustrating. It's hard for me to talk about how I, little I love this, this response. I absolutely yes, love it. <laughs> but I, I also love so playing on that. He says, Galen, you will know when you need to uh, yeah. do something. And yeah. the guy he, literally yells his name. It's like, oh, yeah, is that what yeah. I'm supposed to do? That, <laughs> that, that, and and yeah. again, like truly the only reason he and Valerian are having a little scuffle in that scene is so they have something to do while the sorcerer solves everything. Because she was there when he was like, you'll know when to break the amulet. And she's like, I think we should do it now. And he's like, no, he said I would know. And it's like, she is too sensible to be randomly making this kind of mistake simply for the purposes of these characters not just standing gormlessly on a mountainside watching the plot happen with no input from them. Like, they did so much work on the special effects, but they're stretched over a movie framework that does not hold up to even the slightest amount of scrutiny. And it drives me up the wall because I want to be able to just enjoy how good the dragon looks. And instead, I'm just constantly questioning why anything of this is happening. <laughs> no, it's valid. I mean, I... Any criticism? So wait, you don't like the movie. I think she loves the movie. To be quite honest. Why else would she be so passionate about it? If yeah. she did not love One it. thing I've learned about Red over time is that the less Red liked a movie, the more I'm going to hear about the movie. <laughs> it I, Brad, fascinates me how a movie can have this much work put into it and still be so incoherent from the top down. Like, I, I think, think we need somebody to, would step back and be like, "Hold on, does our main character suck? I think he might <laughs> suck." Can we get some of that Luke Skywalker charisma in this guy? Just even like bear, even like 18-year-old Mark Hamill can pull it off better than this guy. I don't know. Yeah, send him to Tachi Station. Come on, <laughs> let's go. Yeah, at least make him whiny. This guy's just doing things. I, I and feel the fact like... That like... Oh, God. I didn't even talk about Tyrion. The, the closest thing this movie has to a main villain. And literally, nothing he does makes sense. Like... He's just, he's just like... <laughs> He's, he's like, I like kill Galen. That's it. Like, he's, he's like, I, I like the status quo of the dragon eating people. So anything that threatens the status quo of the dragon eating people must die. Whether that means uh, this random old guy who told me to stab him. So honestly, that's not even my fault. Or this other random old guy who I will kill instead of the actual sorcerer's apprentice, who I know is the sorcerer's apprentice because I was there when he said that. Uh, sure. And then, oh, my king says I should let this guy go and try to kill the dragon. Nah, I'm not going to do that. I really like it when the dragon eats people. And it's like this is set up as some kind of big vengeance quest for Galen because this guy has killed his two mentors. But like, mm, anyway. But it's... Red, you forget that he had uh, the big dragon on his armor. So we know that he's team dragon. In yeah, the... oh, clearly no, team I dragon. That. I, I... <laughs> well, really, the answer is his name is Tyrion. He's bad because his name yeah. sounds like tyrant or tyranny. So obviously he is evil with a little pointy beard and a uh, black color aesthetic. And he likes uh, killing old people. I guess it's just, oh, oh. you're calling. Anyway. So you're saying he's ageist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Okay. They're the, they're the slowest, easiest to hit with a bow. That's true. <laughs> you know, also, that's that scene. They have the fucking like, oh, the old guy is I've been shot, but arms. I can still talk. I've been shot, but I can still talk. Oh, you're going to need to peel it off of me. And then he's like, whoa, and his body. somebody shot me, but I could still talk. That's Even when you get to a zero in D&D, you're not quite dead yet. Yeah, he's mostly dead. <laughs> but then the camera pans 10 feet over and the entire camp is just standing there watching this play out. And it's like, none of you guys did or said anything when this guy got fucking sniped from the tree line. Like, why did Galen have to figure this out that he got shot when he turned around with the arrow sticking out of him? Like, it's a good shot for a good reveal, but it doesn't make any sense. Wow. You know, I, We're I, getting you I, a copy of this on 4K, by the way. That's going to be your Easter <laughs> present. <laughs> 
Oh, good. Because I need a part paperweight. six of the uh, five part behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah, I, I do feel like that. Like, definitely, the characterization is weak in places, and um, Tyrion is definitely part of that. Like, kind of suffers a little bit from this, but like, he doesn't need to be that much because what is he? He's part of the power system. He's fine with hurting people. That's like the whole like power systems hurt people. The king and the dra- the dragon kills the the women, but the king sends two women every year to get mm-hmm. killed and is uninterested in the person who could stop that until his own daughter is at risk, right? And this dude is just an extension of that. Why is he cruel and capricious? Because he's part of the power system. Yes, but uh, even then, after the king's daughter dies, the king is immediately down to well, just move on with his life. So. Well, like, oh, exactly. The king doesn't really care, right? But like that's, yeah, he's part of the cruel and capricious power system. The power uh, systems of authority are cruel. And as much as the church thing, like you said, is weirdly stapled on, it's weirdly stapled on because the people who made this movie really care about that and think it's important to the element of fantasy. So I totally, I totally agree with you on like some of the character things are missing, but also I feel like some stuff just works by not having, like you didn't actually need that much more. It was close. It was, I feel like Tyrion is closer than you give it credit for in terms of working. I think that Tyrion needed the least work to go from incomprehensible to slightly functional. I think that the King is probably the most solidly characterized antagonist in the movie. Uh, Definitely. This is a really minor nitpick. I was bummed out that the dragon never talked. He had such a cool name. And then it was just, just (laughs) a big, we haven't said the name. Vermintrax pejorative. Pejorative. Pejorative is so funny. That's cool. But I, I figured that the, because it was like sorcerers and dragons. There's kind of a mirror dynamic when when the sorcerer is talking about like, oh, dragons are old and crusty. He's clearly talking about himself. So I was expecting it to be like a Smaug style, like like tyrant lizard. And instead it's just a big, big scaly man. So that was weird. Um, I think that that kind of works because of how low fantasy the setting is. Like, you know, maybe the dragon could have talked years and years and years ago before he ate all those ladies. But now it's time has passed and magic has started to fade away. And right. This would have been a cool thing for the movie to indicate at any point. Whereas we are just headcanoning explanations to shore up the writing in this movie, which is not doing the work. Yeah, I I'll, I'll say it this way. I think all of the views are accurate. 100%. Um, I am really curious about the viewing experience. And what I say that I I look at it from this perspective. Um, Here's the old man yelling at the clouds moment of our show. Mm -hmm. Here it comes. (laughs) Uh, Watching this thing on Tubi with any kind of commercials, I think is an entirely horrible disservice to the film out of the gate. Um, Only because... I think this is a great example of cinema representing ideas, visuals, um, storytelling, but not characters. And the the question I was trying to ask you, Red, was like, when when you come to an audience and you come into a world like this, and we'll use Star Wars because it's come up several times, <laughs> you as an audience member are supposed to kind of get behind and see the world through Luke Skywalker because he's being introduced to the world of space wizards, right? Luke Skywalker has a, yeah, he has a backstory, et cetera. Um, He has some motivation, but the depth there, um, and again, why it stands a a little bit, uh, well, not a little bit, a lot over all the space operas. Uncle Owen into a crispy critter. Yeah, but I mean, (laughs) there's plot and there's story and there is character, but it's it's not um, dramatic characterization. He is following the hero's journey archetype. Then if you were to say, okay, that's probably the pinnacle of, of that kind of space opera in that genre, 
I think Dragon Slayer comes along and says, we're going to give you a hero's journey through this. You're going to be introduced to this world through Galen. And what I find interesting about this is, and I think Brad alluded to this a little bit, Galen has a false um, idea of what it is to be a wizard. Hmm. And that's even brought up as he's floating an egg around and he's making, you know, the servant, uh, his backpack fly. And the servant's like, do you even know like what you're doing? The servant knows what's going on, but Galen's just living in his own world. And he progressively continues to make bad mistakes along the hero's journey up until the point where after he gets his butt fried and lives <laughs> and he goes, well, I, I'm not a wizard. I'm not this, that, or the other. I think at that point, you as an audience member are just kind of going, yeah, there we followed this guy who clearly didn't know what he was doing. He was the sorcerer's apprentice, truly the Mickey Mouse version of Fantasia, right? Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, his job was to be the vessel to get the wizard there, nothing more. That That's that's the twist, right? Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. And you can say, well, I, that doesn't work because I want more, you know, I got I got deeper characterization from the princess and everything else. I would say that the director was more fascinated with what Austin's kind of pointing out with the ideas of this world, the idea of politics and and religion and how that plays into um, the death of magic and everything else. And I don't think this is a very deep film from a character perspective, but I think it's a deep film in terms of some of the ideas it tries to tackle in some of its subplots here and there. And I think it's a deep film in terms of its visuals. This is why you go to the movie theater. Some of those Vista shots, can you imagine seeing that on an, on the largest screen possible? I'm not talking like a mini max or something, but just imagine not watching this on your phone or your television screen and actually going to a theater and seeing th that environment come to life. Imagine seeing that dragon and hearing it in some kind of sound system that's just going to rumble your seat or something of that nature. I think, again, old man yelling at the sky. You, you are so old. <laughs> I am. I, I, I make this comparison all the time is that I, I live, I truly believe this, in one of the best cities, Baltimore, because we've got some of the oldest theaters that are still operating and, and showing these old films on top of the new stuff. But you can look at any modern film today, and unless it's a Christopher Nolan or, or something or even a Martin Scorsese, most of your directors are shooting for the small screen. They're not shooting for the big screen. This film was not meant for the small screen. It was meant for the big screen. Like I would love to see this at the AFI or the Senator or anything on the biggest screen possible, because I think this is where the magic of filmmaking comes in to where you need a good story, but if if I want deep characters and everything else, and I'm specifically looking for that, maybe I'm going to read a book. But if I'm going to be awed by the visuals, maybe I'm going to watch a film. And I'm not saying that a film can't have deep characters or stories, but I think the intent of this film was to dazzle its audiences. It wasn't to get into the deep characters of Galen or anybody else. It was to have some ideas layered into this fantasy epic, and it was supposed to dazzle you with its special effects. That's why 25% of the budget went to the dragon, right? So... I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you. I do want to highlight that when the movie was aiming to succeed in that, it 100% did. Sure. There was not a single effect shot in that movie that I thought looked bad. Um, however... <laughs> 
Yeah. I am of the opinion that it is not that difficult to write a character who feels like a person. Uh, I know that this is a deceptively tricky thing to do, but the thing is, you can do all of that complex social world building and all of that complex magic and epic storytelling and grand scale visuals and give us a POV character who feels like a human being who is actually perceiving all these things in a way that the audience is supposed to be perceiving them. We don't really know how Galen feels about most things because he does not remain consistent from scene to scene. He doesn't act like a like the, the two choices in that very first scene. Either my master must be up to something because I, I know him too well to think he would let this happen or to think his magic failed him, or something has gone horribly wrong. Maybe maybe his magic did fail him. I don't know, but the dragon needs slaying. Any of these things would have worked, but instead he's like, the pendant shows me. I'm going to go slay that dragon and be a cool wizard. And like, that's tolerable. If he if it's just about how he's immature and he's like, wow, all the power I ever wanted. And then the entire movie spends the rest of its runtime just kicking his ass back into the dirt because he's not actually a wizard. That's an angle that they could have clarified. I, instead, I totally agree. But that's that's why Matthew Robbins is not spoken in the same vein as a Steven Spielberg <laughs> or a Martin Scorsese. Yes. So. I'm, not, I'm just saying <laughs> it is a part of the movie that does not work. I, and because of the way that we experience fantasy worlds, usually through the eyes of a POV character, I think failing at step one of making the POV character make sense is a huge detriment to letting the audience immerse themselves in the world, which is why we're all like, yeah, it looked great, but why the fuck did these things happen? And it's like, these probably would have made more sense if Galen seemed at all curious about understanding why they were happening rather than just being like, I made the table fall over. Sorry, your majesty. Anyway. No, I, I, it's a, it's a valid criticism, but I think that's not what um, Matthew Robbins was going for. Matthew Robbins was trying to show an inept apprentice basically fail for most of the film, and then in the third act come to a realization that he's not necessarily the hero. Or you could say that Robbins is saying, um, and I think this is closer to the point, that uh, small heroic moments make more of an impact than the grand gesture itself. So you love the aspect that the princess is like, oh, I understand the injustice, so I'm going to rig the lottery so that I take on. That is a small act. She didn't take down the dragon or something else, but you know she tried to correct an injustice, but at the same time, the power structure still exists. They're still gonna be picking virgins out and giving to the, to the dragon. But her one small, what could be insignificant, act shows some heroic uh, attributes to it and could be inspiring, right? So I think this film is a little bit smarter than you might give it credit for. Not not totally, because again, I agree with a lot of the things that you're saying in terms of its character development, et cetera. But I think Matthew Robbins is like, man, I'm not trying to be Scorsese here. I'm not trying to do anything in terms of this deep character development or talking anything. I'm going to do a sword and sorcery, but I've got some ideas that I want to put out there. Clunkily, they're there, but I think he's talking about Christianity, um, how religion is used. I think he's talking about the social structure. I think he is fascinated with these small moments of heroic gestures that may not amount to much on the end in the inset of it. But when you take a step back, it does actually affect things in a great way. And I, I think that's the character of Galen. That makes a lot of sense because when you think about it, his final heroic act is he go he goes to fight the dragon and he loses his final heroic act is a small one it's the destruction of the amulet that's it it's the destruction of his illusion as being the hero the entire time the thing that has made him think 
the movie, as we've been talking about it, this movie's actually really grown on me <laughs> while we've been talking about it. Uh, Honestly. This movie has grown on me. Careful. I, feel like I think Red movie. might stab Again, you. It's, not, it's true. It's not perfect. It's far from perfect. There's definitely things I've fixed. But More it's for a movie you guys. About, it's a movie about responsibility, right? Yeah. Like our three ostensibly most important hero figures, Valerian, Galen, and Elspeth, all take on responsibility they had previously shirked. Uh, and you see it, Galen like kind of bounces all over the place. It's true, but you do see it with how he's foolish to start, how he causes the avalanche, mostly because he's showing off more so than actually wanting to kill the dragon. Then he goes to try to kill the dragon because he's actually learned to be like to take responsibility for the mistakes he's made, fails, and then ultimately gives up his power, the thing that he thinks makes him worthwhile, to kill the dragon. And I do agree that the final scene where she's like, smash it now, and he's like, no, not yet. Like, you're like, I she does feel more rational. Like there, there's a string. There's a question of why though they each feel that way. But other than that, I do feel like it's it's maybe a little bit stronger uh, than it might seem at first glance. It's, it is, but but yeah. Red Red's point about the character, I totally agree with it. But again, yeah. if I go to a movie like Dragon Slayer, I'm kind of like, well, I I'm not. I don't know if I'm necessarily going to be looking for that depth of character in that film. Sometimes your audience expectation. Now, again. I would go to a movie like Deathstalker, Conan the Barbarian, and if I'm pleasantly surprised because there's depth in character that I that I didn't expect, fantastic. But I think sometimes, like I said, this film it it will wash over you in a positive way if it's washed if it's watched with the right mentality, the right set of expectations, but also with um with the grander and spectacle in mind in terms of the environment, meaning not, not, not on Tubi or Pluto with ads. I, I think, I think I will, yeah. the commercials will, you could look at this film and I, I streaming, you know, I mean, I, I get it. That's just the, the way it is today. Right. But to me, this is, this is one of those things where you would champion it and say, this is why you'd want to go to the movie theaters to see something like this because it looks gorgeous. Um, and I'm not even talking about the special effects. I'm talking about some of the composition shots of just the environment. Um, when Brad and I were watching it, frames and frames. Yeah. One incredibly comedically framed horse at the beginning that does get its comeuppance at the end. I love that full circle for him. Uh, it, it, it's visually gorgeous. I, I agree with you that it definitely would be benefit from definitely watching without ads and definitely watching on like a home screen. I think that the thing we're getting hung up on a little bit, I think red, to your point, like Galen is probably the weakest written character and he's our POV character. So if you don't connect with him, it can make it difficult to connect with the movie. But at the same time, I quite enjoyed this. And, you know, as much as I agree that I think Galen is written very inconsistently scene to scene, uh, I don't be- I think because he was a character who already knows how the world works. And so we were not learning how the world works through him, but rather through seeing it as it went by. Uh, it still worked for me, even if I recognize that, like, He's definitely not well. <laughs> I, I, I agree with you, Red. It, scene to scene, different guy. But uh, I, I I would hesitate to be so hard on a lot of the other characters in the film, even if they're not given as much to do, just because I do think that they're overall internally consistent. Galen being the exception and unfortunately also being the protagonist means that he's the most obviously. That's totally fair. I agree with that. Yeah. I'll, I'll kind of like uh, speak to what you were saying about how... Uh, about the way that the movie was meant to be viewed. Because when you were mentioning how you watched it with the, the 4K version, I was like, oh, that's that's how it was meant. That's how it's supposed <laughs> to be watched, you know? And it kind of does make me want to go and get the 4K version and watch it with a with that you know, new perspective. So 
Well, I, look, if this thing ever shows up at the at the AFI in Silver Springs, Maryland, right outside of DC, we're flying red in everybody. <laughs> we're we're going to brainwash her into liking this film. Um, luck and luck. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like the I, I, uh, the Dada Bomb slush fund doesn't have that much money in it, so we'll, we'll have to figure out what to do. Greyhound bus it then, not fly. Okay. How's that? Yes. Uh, oh, there you go. It's an I'll interesting movie. It's an interesting combination of competence and strange lack thereof in weird places. Because yeah. when I'm measuring the difficulty of making this movie, I think making the dragon look good is a much more Herculean task than writing some goddamn dialogue that makes sense if you look at it for five seconds. Like, I think we're doing a lot of work to make this movie make sense in post by being like, if you really squint and you like conspiracy board out exactly what Galen <laughs> might be thinking between these scenes, I think we can we can we can pull meaning out of the white noise going on behind his eyes. But like, I just. It's so weird to me because like I, I'm not I do not require Spielbergian levels of depth from my protagonists. Lucas levels of depths would be fine. There are stock <laughs> fantasy trope characters for a reason. There are humble farm boys and roguish rapscallions and princesses with attitude. And it's so easy to just turn them loose and let them do the easy thing. And they didn't do that with Galen. He's he's not exactly a stock trope. He's a punchline from a wordless musical number and they were like we're gonna make this guy the protagonist of our complicated movie about dragons and christianity and the decline of magic in the world so in half the scenes he's gonna be cartoonishly incompetent and in the other half of the scenes we're gonna try and make him like stock fantasy hero version uh, I, two. I, I, I i mean but these guys these guys making this film were visual guys i mean and that, that makes their... sense yeah. the visuals are good <laughs> but that's but... why you also get a screenwriter who knows how to write story so that it's not just pretty or you just go full fantasia and you don't even try to write dialogue you just let it look pretty there are things that they could have done <laughs> that would have made me like this movie, I, i'm gonna didn't do any of that no 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 I, I i actually now you're i wanted to watch it again i'm definitely gonna watch it because if i look at it through your critical eye i i really want to test that theory of is he really that inconsistent mm. or if you're talking about a three act structure, does it really lean into the first two acts of him being incompetent um, and not very good? And then coming to some realization in the third act of that whole um, theory of, of you don't have to be a grand wizard to actually make a, a difference. It becomes this small act becomes heroic, that theme. Um, I think it would be very cool if this movie made sense on a rewatch. Uh, I think it, I, I think it does take a bit in order for, for Galen to turn around more like the third act of the third act. It kind of feels like, I think, but yeah. I think the problem that strikes me most blatantly is that Galen is a fundamentally deeply incurious character. Uh, he, and the thing is that starts off very reasonable. He just got power when clearly he has wanted power his whole apprenticeship. So he's like, oh my gosh, it chose me. It's glowing. And it took me so long to figure out what the hell he was freaking out about. Cause it's like a thing in the study glowed and now I'm losing my mind about it. And he doesn't even, it takes him a little while to be like the amulet. It's working for me now. Now I can do magic because the amulet, I guess, is the source of the magic. It's like, okay, cool. I'm, I'm learning things about the world building. I'm learning things about the magic. And then sometimes it works really good. Sometimes it doesn't work really good. And we never even get a cursory bit of him being like, it's strange that I can't control the magic as well as my master could. Or like, I, I wanted it to just block the thing, but instead it collapsed. Maybe I need to practice more like any of that. But instead he's basically just silent and they spend all that time instead 
on inferring a romantic subplot between him and Valerian because she girl and he boy. And what else could they be doing? And it's just well, like, like she's, as not soon girl, as, she's not girl all the time. As yeah. soon as she was like, oh, you're in love, aren't you? And he was like, yes. I was like, fuck, of course we're doing this. The 80s where there was three I screenwriting to ideas to go to around for that a little bit, because I know I like I know it's a little stocky in 80s, but also. It tickled my little brain a little bit. I was like, ha, 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 it's the not like other girls. They're going with the brunette this time. <laughs> They're both little yes. I like that he gets tempted by the princess. princess. He yeah. just likes Valerian. He just yeah. likes Valerian. And I think that that's, not, you know, it's not like the romance was a huge part of it, but like it's romantic fantasy. It's 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 romantic in the non-love sense. It's the over-the-topness of it all. And I, I appreciate a little taste of that. It's not the most perfectly executed love plot in, every, in the entire movie, but I wouldn't hold that against it. Yeah, it's, look, I... Again, I agree with, I, I, depending on what optic you look at it and where you're going to put your uh, weight in terms of what your expectation is for that film, all of these comments are totally valid. Uh, and, and I think, some I can't remember who said it, it might have been Sophia or something, it, it totally makes sense why critics may gravitate to something because they feel like there's a little bit more meat on that with its social commentary, whereas the audience will come back and have that reaction of like, well, the dragon's cool, but man, I just, I didn't get some of these other sequences. Um, as many times as I've seen this thing, if, if you haven't guessed, I, I do truly love this film. This was my week's pick anyways. Um, I, I absolutely, as many times as I've seen this thing, will pick up on something a little bit different. Um, am I putting that in there and it just doesn't exist? I'm sure probably, um, maybe as, as Brad will call out in my old age, I'm, 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 I'm just getting brain dead in some aspects, but at the end of the day, I think this movie actually is a little bit smarter than some people give it credit for. It's not in your face in terms of what it's trying to say with some of these characters or even its ideas or themes. Is this something that you get more out of a rewatch? Absolutely. I think so. But you have to understand that there are flaws in it a hundred percent throughout the whole thing. Um, But those flaws to a certain degree, I think, set it apart in some unique way and make it interesting that they don't fill in all of the gaps. I I think that's intentional, but one guy's opinion, right? (laughs) (laughs) What you're saying is that it's the rubber of the eighties. Stop. Noir, you can't do this to me. It's not allowed. You can't make me talk about rubber on another. (laughs) It's the rubber of the eighties. I don't, I don't know if it's the rubber of the eighties. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, you're making me want to go back and watch Rubber again. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. Data, data. Uh, okay. <laughs> this this is great. Like, this is what Brad and I always hope for, bringing people on and not having sort of a, I don't know, a love fest over a particular film or even a hate fest, but getting enough people that come at it with yeah. a different angle. Some like it, some some don't like it. I mean, that's the great thing about film. That, that's why we talk about film for so many episodes. You you want to share those ideas. You you never really want to convince somebody um, and say, wow, you're wrong. You got to look at it this way. But even, even everything you're talking about it, red, it makes me want to go back and watch it again and take everything that you've, you've talked about it and say, Oh, can I see what she's talking about from that perspective? I hope you have a wonderful time. Uh, I <laughs> hopefully will never have to rewatch this movie. Again, like everyone's tastes are different. Everyone's deal breakers totally are different fair, yeah. for me. If I can't get into the characters or if I can't like at least understand why they work, the rest of the world's just going to slide off of me. Uh, I, I need a POV character that seems like they're interested in learning how the world works or at least are engaging with it in a, 
in a meaningful way. And there, there was enough hints of a hard magic system that then they refused to show me where I was like, all right, I'm not going to get anything out of this except dragon cool. Uh, totally so fair. That, yeah. Yeah. So, but you guys have fun. I mean, maybe don't watch it on Pluto TV. <laughs> I think yeah, yeah, now I have feel one so, no. solid recommendation from the four guests. Don't watch this on Pluto TV. <laughs> Honestly, it's $4 on Amazon and I was tricked. Should have watched it on Amazon. <laughs> Gave me a welcome reprieve from the movie every few Saved minutes, me a which lot I of time. appreciate. Your, your time is worth more my, than $4. My, my schedule, I, I planned it so I would finish just before I had to go, do something. So I had to actually pause the movie and go do stuff for hours and then come back and finish it. Uh, because the Pluto TV ads are also a valuable lesson about, uh, you know, where you consume your media. Don't trust Pluto TV. <laughs> hey, I, I'll just I'll, I'll put it this way. Look, if you're watching an 80s canon film with Chuck Norris, <laughs> Pluto TV's fine for 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 that, right? A lot of rush hours on Pluto TV, and that's great. But there you go. Yeah. Else. <laughs> there's something about some of these films like. My God, I couldn't imagine watching something like 2001 A Space Odyssey on Pluto TV. I mean, that would, A, that would be eight hours long. Um, but B, the commercials would interrupt, I think, the, the fluidity of some of the visuals. Um, and I, I think some of that exists in this film to a certain degree. Again, you're not going to say this director's name in the same uh, you know, league as, as Spielberg or any of the others. But uh, yeah, Chuck Norris, fine. Pluto TV all day long. Dragon Slayer, absolutely not. Um, so we have this question. I think we know where one person's definitely going to land, but we got to go through this. <laughs> Why am I the heel of this episode? <laughs> it's fun. Have you been movies. a part of this episode? Like, it's totally fun. Are you not listening to all the things? I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad, glad to, to dislike be the heel this today. movie. It's usually Brad, so I'm glad oh. it's somebody else. Um, hey, is this what you're it feels welcome. like to be a good guy? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> We love you, Red. We love you. We do. Thanks. Thanks. Um, so I'm going to start with you. <laughs> is We just got done having a lively discussion of Dragon's List. This is one of my favorite discussions we've had, which Aww. I knew it was going to be because you guys are amazing. Um, so is Dragon Slayer a bomb? Yes. <laughs> I think that, like, look, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I am a bad movie aficionado. I love watching movies that everybody tells me suck because I always know that there is good stuff in them. And it's always true. <laughs> the Cinema Wins motto is that every movie is somebody's favorite and he wants to figure out why. And that's that's how what I go into bad movies trying to find. And in this one, when I looked up what everybody got out of it, they were like, that dragon looked amazing. It was so inspiring. I, I didn't know that VFX could look like that. And I was like, that's cool. I've grown up in the 2000s, so I did know that movies could look like that. So I'm not getting that same kind of transcendent experience out of this that Del Toro uh, and uh, George R.R. Martin did when they watched this movie at a formative age. And we're like, dragons can look tight as fuck. So, yes, I think that there was a good thing that came out of this movie and it was inspiring better things. But the movie itself is a bomb. <laughs> That's That might be one of the best reviews we've ever had. Um <laughs> Austin, I'm going to kick it over to you. Where do you land on Dragon Slayer? Is it a bomb or not a bomb? Oh, my goodness. Um, it's, it feels so unfair to put it into either camp. I feel like I feel like it really succeeded where the makers of the film cared about it succeeding. Like, it, I feel like a real bomb would be a movie that um, the people who were making it really thought it was going to be, like, are really convinced it's one thing. It was actually something else. There are definitely movies I've seen that are like that, where they're like, oh, you didn't get it. I'm like, I don't think you got it as you were making it. Um, <laughs> I think these guys knew exactly what they were doing, and I think there were missteps. But even though I couldn't recommend, like, I, I wouldn't be like, oh, Yo, you're watching movies tonight? you got to see Dragon Slayer. <laughs> I do feel like I got to hand it to this movie. I'm going to say not a bomb. All right. 
Wow. Okay. I don't know where this is going to land. Uh, well, Sophie, I'm just going around from what I can see. Same question to you. Is this, is this film a bomb? I think similarly to Austin, like, I wouldn't be confident calling this a bomb because I do think it is successful in areas that it's trying to be successful. I think 60% of the audience is going to connect with it as per their reviews. And that 60% would say not a bomb. And I'm probably in that 60%. Uh, but I completely understand why, because of its complexity, 40% of the audience might say that it is. So it, it's very polarizing. And I think that makes it a very interesting watch. And I'd definitely land on not a bomb. But I I, I could see why the jury's a little split on this one. <laughs> All right. Noir, you've been awfully quiet. Although you jump in, you're like, just like your character, little words of wisdom here and there. <laughs> Where do you uh, land on this one? I mean, for, for one thing, I just like listening to the conversation more, more than not. But um, Austin has his definition of a, what a bomb is. My, my definition is even if the uh, makers of the movie go in with a very clear vision of what they want, if they don't manage to execute it in a way that gets the audience also seeing that vision then i i think that it has bombed and um and in this case like they absolutely nailed the visuals and i think a lot of the and it, but i think it took like perhaps a more deeper look than what the writing and the characterization kind of like offered you at the beginning uh that it didn't really it honestly kind of took down from the overall experience of it being a movie. So I will, I will say that it is a bomb, but oh, I don't, I enough. will, I will say it's a bomb, but I don't care. I like bombs. I really like that definition. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did the audience, you know, connect with what they uh, thought was important or what the, what the creators thought was important rather than yeah. did the creators put what they thought was important in there? That's interesting. It, and in this case, I think the things that, kind of like took away from the movie also took away from what the creators were trying to convey. So that's, that's my more objective stance from it. But if you ask, if you wanted to ask me personally, if I like the movie or not, I like the movie and you know, if I've been, I've been, I've been hawking rubber this entire time. So maybe, <laughs> maybe I am the type of person to, to say you should watch dragon slayer. No, I like maybe it. We're, we're, we're going to put you in that category. I, I like your definition. I like your initial answer. I think that's a, that's a really interesting way to look at that. So we've got, Two who classified as not a bomb and, and two called it bomb. So Brad, where where are you gonna land on this one? <clears throat> well, you know where I'm gonna land. This is this is not a bomb for me. So Troy, you, you know what uh, four out of six is, right? <laughs> <laughs> what's what's that, Brad? It's like about it's about sixty six point six repeating. Roughly 60%, yeah. <laughs> so it's roughly around what the audience is. We're so. representative. Yes. Yeah. Hey. Very, you did very yeah, well. the tribe has spoken. Get we out. Took, you know, we took you out. <laughs> here, but... Oh no, now I won't get to watch Dragon Slayer again. Yeah. The fellowship of the bomb has has, has so. determined <laughs> Yeah, yeah offic officially, it's later. not a bomb. Uh, yep. <laughs> spend more than $4. Go buy the 4K if you got the setup. It's gorgeous. I think it's a great film. I love rewatching this thing. Uh, I, I'm i curious what everybody else uh, thinks who listens to the podcast, where you're going to land on it. Um, I'm I'm also very curious about the takes on it. Like, what was the, the filmmaker's intent? Um, did you get it? Did you not get it? Is it one of those things where they, man, they should have spent a little bit, you know, maybe take 5 million from the visual effects and give it to, uh, Spielberg to write the screenplay. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Brad. Yes, sir. What are we talking about next week? 
Oh boy, we are talking about it goes by two names. Mm-hmm. The first name is Dark Phoenix. The second name is X-Men Dark Phoenix from 2019. Oh, uh, it, it the more the, divisive one. That tells the story of the Dark Phoenix saga, one of my favorite mm. pieces of comic book <laughs> literature of all time. Arguably tells the story. Butchers the story. Uh, and and basically shits it out onto the screen. <laughs> uh, one of the most bizarre uh, uh, productions of a film of all time. This will be one of those where we talk about the production a lot because it's got a lot going on. Yes. People that... not wanting to be there, so they're barely in makeup, and yeah, it's, yeah. It, it'll it be fun. Yeah, so if you if you haven't guessed, Brad's a huge X-Men fan. So uh, a lot of, lot of the original comic series too, right? You've been collecting for a while on that one. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Uh, folks, Tell everybody where they can find your amazing podcast. And um, I guess the best way to start, because I, I didn't start from the beginning. I think I started season three um, and, oh. and have, have gone and the back. Truth crazy. Finally, the we truth finally comes out. Reason. Huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's I, two hours. <laughs> no, it's... Season five is going to be confusing then. Yeah. It w- hey, you've, you've got some good resources out there. The, the wiki fandom thing gave me a little bit of a, a backdrop to it too. So huh, yes, I, I am. I do. I do love your podcast, but where does everybody else find it? And just, uh, tell them like how they can get a hold of you. Yeah. So we are rolling with difficulty podcast. You could find us uh, on YouTube. We post, uh, everything except for season one, because it was before we started recording the combats, but we post, uh, animated battle maps. So if you prefer to look at something while you're watching our combat happen, check us out there. And we're also on all fine audio platforms, wherever your podcasts are. You listen to, uh, Apple podcasts, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. I'm constantly going through our RSS feed and adding it to other lists. So if it's a podcast player, we're probably on it. Um, you can also find us on Twitter and Blue Sky at Roll W Difficulty at Roll with Difficulty, um, and we also have a Discord server and Patreon if you want to chat with some of the fan community or support the show. Uh, both of those are linked in the show notes for all of our episodes. So check us out, give us a listen. We're wrapping up our first campaign like this yeah. month, which is insane, and yeah. we're getting geared up for campaign two. So a great yeah. starting point, uh, if you want to listen to one story in its entirety, go back to season one and listen through campaign <laughs> one, or hang out for a few months, and this summer, check out campaign two and start fresh with our, our brand new cast of characters and uh, explore more of the Planescape with us. Are you going to do some more of those cute, because you, I think before this last ep- episode, you did a and a session that was super mm-hmm. entertaining. Are you going to do some yeah. more of those? Yeah, we're going to do another Q&A uh, after this season wraps up uh it'll be a little longer than usual since it'll be kind of a post campaign and post season q a and we tend to do them once or twice as a season's coming out so there's definitely gonna be more of those in the future uh we've also got a couple cool one shots planned for the time downtime between seasons where we'll be playing different systems than D. so uh those are great jumping in points too if you are interested in things like call of cthulhu uh a familiar problem the avatar led uh, avatar legends ttrpg system we we love trying out other systems in that those like one shots and they're very easily digestible they're one podcast maybe two if you're feeling fancy uh so definitely a couple points of entry if you're interested <laughs> yeah. do you sleep sophia I've, I've always wanted to know this question <laughs> jury's still out <laughs> jury's out on that one yeah uh i podcast a lot um <laughs> quite a bit really, yeah 
Yeah, uh, desperately trying to get everyone I know to start a podcast at all times. And so far it's worked. (laughs) There you go. Very persuasive. Brad, uh, if anybody wants to share their thoughts on Dragon Slayer or maybe give us some recommendations on uh, some movie bombs we should be talking about. I think this year we're going to do another month of listener requests. We are for sure. Uh, That's notabombpod at gmail.com or head over to our lovely website that I am slowly, slowly rebuilding, uh, notabombpodcast.com. Thanks for our hosting, for uh, upgrading everything and breaking all of my lovely work. Um, Yeah, that's... uh, and then you can hit the contact us button over there and uh, hit us up there. Or you can find us on X, Facebook, or Instagram. Hmm. Okay. You know what, Troy? <laughs> calling it X is just... Bad. Still not there so yet? Twitter. We all know you it's know, Twitter. You know, if you have to say formally Twitter, your rebranding sucks. So Even Siri <laughs> says that whenever it reads like text aloud, like a link. X, formerly Twitter. And I'm like, thank you, Siri. We <laughs> Um, and outside of rolling with difficulty, I think we have a couple other podcasts to, to push to, right? Yeah. That's gentleman got gentleman's guide to midnight cinema. Watch skip plus the VHS files night of the living podcast, the backlook cinema podcast, mixtape podcast, some podcasts called movie struck and readers <laughs> of the podcast. Yes. Uh, head over to YouTube. You can, uh, our, our good friend, Josh, I mean, they've got VHS files podcast on there now. He's got a new video. Is it body bags or body bags? Yep. Yep. And then, uh, John has, and now for something a little bit different, those are all great shows. Um, Sophia Austin noir red. I, I don't know if I've said this like big fan, big fan. And uh, I can't thank you enough to, for just taking time out of your busy schedule and talking Dragon Slayer with us. I I had a blast tonight. I hope you guys had a good time. Um, Super yeah. fun. Yeah. So fun. <laughs> so <laughs> More antagonistic than I anticipated, but I had a good time with it. <laughs> I was trying to workshop like a, a, a red man, like method man joke for Red and I as like antagonists, <laughs> but I couldn't come up with one. But I was, it was I was workshopping it. I just couldn't get it out. So tragic. Well, the great news, you're going to love this June. We're just doing sword and sorcery films. Um, So we may have to share our list with you of what we're going to talk about. They've all bombed um, either critically financially or both. And uh, if you guys are so kind, we would love to have you back on again and and we'll let you pick which one out of the um is it I think we're doing like 5 weeks almost isn't it or 5 there are 5 weeks 5 recording days in or weeks in uh, June so yes yeah. yeah. so hopefully we can get you guys back on we'll find a movie you like red <laughs> it can't be that hard i like conan the 1980s version <laughs> i love it um but yeah we would love to have you guys on and and hopefully in June so yay awesome yeah. Cool. Folks, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, evening. Talk, uh, thanks for stopping by. Head on over to Rolling with Difficulty. Give their show a listen. It's fantastic. Come back here next week. We're going to hear Red drop Someone something died. again. <laughs> We're fine. Red is I, throwing things into rage. Just, I, you guys can't see it, but no, I'm, I'm so pissed. I smacked it. into my dice tray. Okay. My it's okay. We know you don't like the movie. It's all right. The episode's <laughs> over. The episode's over. Calm down. It's all right. Come back next week. We're going to hear Brad talk about the X-Men. So we'll catch you then.